You are not so smart. Why you have too many friends on Facebook? Why your memory is mostly friction and 46 other ways you are deluding yourself? By David McCrowney. Introduction You the misconception. You are a rational, logical being who sees the world as it really is. The truth, you are as deluded as the rest of us, but that's okay, it keeps you sane. You hold in your hands a compendium of information about self-delusion and the wonderful ways we all succumb to it. You think you know how the world works, but you really don't. You move through life forming opinions and cobbling together a story about who you are and why you did the things you did leading up to reading this sentence, and taken as a whole it seems real. The truth is, there is a growing body of work coming out of psychology and cognitive science that says you have no clue why you act the way you do, choose the things you choose, or think the thoughts you think. Instead, you create narratives, little stories to explain away why you gave up on that diet, why you prefer Apple over Microsoft, why you clearly remember it was Beth who told you the story about the clown with the peg leg made of soup cans when it was really Adam, and it wasn't a clown. Take a moment to look around the room in which you are reading this. Just for a second, see the effort that went into not only what you see, but the centuries of progress leading to the inventions surrounding you. Start with your shoes, and then move to the book in your hands, then look to the machines and devices grinding and beeping in every corner of your life the toaster, the computer, the ambulance wailing down a street far away. Contemplate, before we get down to business. How amazing it is humans have solved so many problems, constructed so much in all the places where people linger. Buildings and cars, electricity and language what a piece of work is man, right? What triumphs of rationality, you know. If you really take it all in, you can become enamored with a smug belief about how smart you and the rest of the human race have become. Yet you lock your keys in the car. You forget what it was you were about to say. You get fat. You go broke. Others do it too. From bank crises to sexual escapades, we can all be really stupid sometimes. From the greatest scientist to the most humble artisan, every brain within every body is infested with preconceived notions and patterns of thought that lead it astray without the brain knowing it. So you are in good company. No matter who your idols and mentors are, they too are prone to spurious speculation. Take the Wayson selection task as our first example. Imagine a scientist deals four cards out in front of you. Unlike normal playing cards, these have single numbers on one side and single colors on the other. You see from left to right a three, an eight, a red card, and a brown card. The shifty psychologist allows you to take in the peculiar cards for a moment and poses a question. Suppose the psychologist says, I have a deck full of these strange cards, and there is one rule at play. If a card has an even number on one side, then it must be read on the opposite side. Now, which card or cards must you flip to prove I'm telling the truth? Remember 3, 8, red, brown which do you flip? As psychological experiments go, this is one of the absolute simplest. As a game of logic, this too should be a cinch to figure out. When psychologist Peter Wayson conducted this experiment in 1977, less than 10% of the people he asked got the correct answer. His cards had vowels instead of colors, but in repetitions of the test where colors were used, 
about the same number of people got totally confused when asked to solve the riddle. So what was your answer? If you said the three or the red card, or said only the eight or only the brown, you are among the 90% of people whose minds get boggled by this task. If you turn over the three and see either red or brown, it does not prove anything. You learn nothing new. If you turn over the red card and find an odd number, it doesn't violate the rule. The only answer is to turn over both the eight card and the brown card. If the other side of the eight is red, you've only confirmed the rule, but not proven if it is broken elsewhere. If the brown has an odd number, you learn nothing, but if it has an even number you have falsified the claims of the psychologist. Those two cards are the only ones which provide answers. Once you know the solution, it seems obvious. What could be simpler than four cards and one rule? If 90% of people can't figure this out, how did humans build Rome and cure polio? This is the subject of this book you are naturally hindered into thinking in certain ways and not others, and the world around you is the product of dealing with these biases, not overcoming them. If you replace the numbers and colors on the cards with a social situation, the test becomes much easier. Pretend the psychologist returns, and this time he says, you are at a bar, and the law says you must be over 21 years old to drink alcohol. On each of these four cards a beverage is written on one side and the age of the person drinking it on the other. Which of these four cards must you turn over to see if the owner is obeying the law? He then deals four cards which read, 23 beer coke 17 now it seems much easier. Coke tells you nothing, and 23 tells you nothing. If the 17 year old is drinking alcohol, the owner is breaking the law, but if the 17 year old isn't, you must check the age of the beer drinker. Now the two cards stick out beer and 17. Your brain is better at seeing the world in some ways, like social situations, and not so good in others, like logic puzzles with numbered cards. This is the sort of thing you will find throughout this book, with explanations and musings to boot. The Wayson selection task is an example of how lousy you are at logic, but you are also filled with beliefs that look good on paper but fall apart in practice. When those beliefs fall apart, you tend not to notice. You have a deep desire to be right all of the time and a deeper desire to see yourself in a positive light both morally and behaviorally. You can stretch your mind pretty far to achieve these goals. The three main subjects in this book are cognitive biases, heuristics, and logical fallacies. These are components of your mind like organs in your body, which under the best conditions serve you well. Life, unfortunately, isn't always lived under the best conditions. Their predictability and dependability have kept confident men, magicians, advertisers, psychics, and peddlers of all manner of pseudoscientific remedies in business for centuries. It wasn't until psychology applied rigorous scientific method to human behavior that these self-deceptions became categorized and quantified. Cognitive biases are predicable patterns of thought and behavior that lead you to draw incorrect conclusions. You and everyone else come into the world preloaded with these pesky and completely wrong ways of seeing things, and you rarely notice them. Many of them serve to keep you confident in your own perceptions or to inhibit you from seeing yourself as a buffoon. The maintenance of a positive self-image seems to be so important to the human mind you have evolved mental mechanisms designed to make you feel awesome about yourself, 
Cognitive biases lead to poor choices, bad judgments, and wacky insights that are often totally incorrect. For example, you tend to look for information that confirms your beliefs and ignore information that challenges them. This is called confirmation bias. The contents of your bookshelf and the bookmarks in your web browser are a direct result of it. Heuristics are mental shortcuts you use to solve common problems. They speed up processing in the brain, but sometimes make you think so fast you miss what is important. Instead of taking the long way around and deeply contemplating the best course of action or the most logical train of thought, you use heuristics to arrive at a conclusion in record time. Some heuristics are learned, and others come free with every copy of the human brain. When they work, they help your mind stay frugal. When they don't, you see the world as a much simpler place than it really is. For example, if you notice a rise in reports about shark attacks on the news, you start to believe sharks are out of control, when the only thing you know for sure is the news is delivering more stories about sharks than usual. Logical fallacies are like math problems involving language, in which you skip a step or get turned around without realizing it. They are arguments in your mind where you reach a conclusion without all the facts because you don't care to hear them or have no idea how limited your information is. You become a bumbling detective. Logical fallacies can also be the result of wishful thinking. Sometimes you apply good logic to false premises, at other times you apply bad logic to the truth. For instance, if you hear Albert Einstein refused to eat scrambled eggs, you might assume scrambled eggs are probably bad for you. This is called the argument from authority. You assume if someone is super smart, then all of that person's decisions must be good ones, but maybe Einstein just had peculiar taste. With each new subject in these pages you will start to see yourself in a new way. You will soon realize you are not so smart, and thanks to a plethora of cognitive biases, faulty heuristics, and common fallacies of thought, you are probably deluding yourself minute by minute just to cope with reality. Don't fret. This will be fun. One priming the misconception, you know when you are being influenced and how it is affecting your behavior. The truth, you are unaware of the constant nudging you receive from ideas formed in your unconscious mind. You are driving home from the grocery store and you realize you forgot to buy spinach dip, which was the only reason you went there in the first place. Maybe you could buy some at a gas station. Nah, you'll just get it next trip. Thoughts of dip lead to ruminations on the price of gas, which lead to excogitation over bills, which leads to thoughts about whether you can afford a new television, which reminds you of the time you watched an entire season of Battlestar Galactica in one sitting what the hell. You are home already and have no recollection of the journey. You drove home in a state of highway hypnosis, your mind and body seemingly floating along in parallel. When you stopped the car and turned the key, you snapped out of a dreamlike state sometimes called line hypnosis when describing the dissociative mental world of an assembly line worker stuck in a repetitive grind. In this place, consciousness drifts as one mental task goes into autopilot and the rest of the mind muses about less insipid affairs, floating away into the umbra. You split your subjective experience into consciousness and subconsciousness all the time. You are doing it right now breathing, blinking, swallowing, maintaining your posture, 
and holding your mouth closed while you read. You could pull those systems into conscious control or leave them to the autonomic nervous system. You could drive cross-country consciously adjusting your foot on the gas pedal, shifting your hands on the wheel, mulling over the millions of micro-decisions needed to avoid gnashing metallic death at high speeds, or you could sing along with your friends while the other parts of your mind handle the mundane stuff. You accept your unconscious mind as just another weird component of the human experience, but you tend to see it as a separate thing a primal self underneath consciousness that doesn't have the keys to the car. Science has learned otherwise. A great example of how potent a force your unconscious can be was detailed by researchers Chen Bo Zhong at the University of Toronto and Katie Lilianquist at Northwestern in a 2006 paper published in the journal Science. They conducted a study in which people were asked to remember a terrible sin from their past, something they had done which was unethical. The researchers asked them to describe how the memory made them feel. They then offered half of the participants the opportunity to wash their hands. At the end of the study, they asked subjects if they would be willing to take part in later research for no pay as a favor to a desperate graduate student. Those who did not wash their hands agreed to help 74% of the time, but those who did wash agreed only 41% of the time. According to the researchers, one group had unconsciously washed away their guilt and felt less of a need to pay penance. The subjects didn't truly wash away their emotions, nor did they consciously feel as though they had. Cleansing has meaning beyond just avoiding germs. According to Zhong and Lilianquist, most human cultures use the ideas of cleanliness and purity as opposed to filth and grime to describe both physical and moral states. Washing is part of many religious rituals and metaphorical phrases used in everyday language, and referring to dastardly deeds as being dirty or to evil people as scum is also common. You even make the same face when feeling disgusted about a person's actions as you do when seeing something gross. Unconsciously, the people in the study connected their hand washing with all the interconnected ideas associated with the act, and then those associations influenced their behavior. When a stimulus in the past affects the way you behave and think or the way you perceive another stimulus later on, it is called priming. Every perception, no matter if you consciously notice, sets off a chain of related ideas in your neural network. Pencils make you think of pens. Blackboards make you think of classrooms. It happens to you all the time, and though you are unaware, it changes the way you behave. One of many studies that have revealed how much influence your subconscious mind has over the rest of your thinking and behavior and how easily it can be influenced by priming was conducted in 2003 by Aaron K., Christian Wheeler, John Barghand, and Lee Ross. People were separated into two groups and asked to draw lines between photos and text descriptions. One group looked at neutral photos. They drew lines to connect kites, whales, turkeys, and other objects to descriptions on the other side of the paper. The second group connected lines to descriptions for photos of briefcases, fountain pens, and other items associated with the world of business. Participants were then moved into isolated rooms and told they had been paired off with another subject. The other person was actually in on the experiment. Each person was then told they were now going to play a game in which they could earn up to $10. The researchers presented the subject with a cup and explained two strips of paper weighted inside, one with the word offer written on it and another with the word decision, 
The subject was then given a choice blindly pluck a slip of paper from the cup, or allow the other person to blindly select. The catch? Whoever pulled out the offer slip would get the $10 and choose how it was divided between both parties. The partner would then choose to accept or, or reject the offer. If the partner rejected, both received nothing. This is called the ultimatum game, and its predictability has made it a favorite tool of psychologists and economists. Offers below 20% of the total amount are usually turned down. Most people chose to do the picking. They didn't know both slips had offer written on them. If they instead let the other person do the picking, the actor pretended to get the decision slip. So everyone in the study was put in the position of making a reasonable offer, knowing if they did not, they would miss out on some free cash. The results were bizarre, but confirmed the scientists' suspicions about priming. So how did the two groups differ? In the group who connected neutral photos to their descriptions before the ultimatum game, 91% chose to split the money evenly $5 each. In the group who connected the business photos, only 33% offered to split the money evenly, the rest tried to keep a little more for themselves. The researchers ran the experiment again with real objects instead of photos. They had participants play the ultimatum game in a room with a briefcase and leather portfolio on the far end of a table along with a fountain pen in front of the participant's chair. Another group sat in a room with neutral items a backpack, a cardboard box, and a wooden pencil. This time, 100% of the neutral group chose to split the money evenly, but only 50% of those in the group sitting in a room with business-related items did the same. Half of the business-primed group tried to stiff the other party. All of the subjects were debriefed afterward as to why they behaved as they did, but not one person mentioned the objects in the room. Instead, they confabulated and told the researchers about their own feelings on what is and is not fair. Some described their impressions of the people they were playing the game with and said those feelings influenced them. Mere exposure to briefcases and fancy pens had altered the behavior of normal, rational people. They became more competitive, greedier, and had no idea why. Faced with having to explain themselves, they rationalized their behavior with erroneous tales they believed were true. The same researchers conducted the experiment in other ways. They had subjects complete words with some of the letters omitted, and again those who first saw business-related images would turn a word like CPTIV into competitive 70% of the time while only 42% of the neutral group did. If shown an ambiguous conversation between two men trying to come to an agreement, those who first saw photos of business-related objects saw it as a negotiation, whereas the neutral group saw an attempt at compromise. In every case, the subjects' minds were altered by unconscious priming. Just about every physical object you encounter triggers a blitz of associations throughout your mind. You aren't a computer connected to two cameras. Reality isn't a vacuum where you objectively survey your surroundings. You construct reality from minute to minute with memories and emotions orbiting your sensations and cognition, together they form a collage of consciousness that exists only in your skull. Some objects have personal meaning, like the blow-pop ring your best friend gave you in middle school or the handcrafted mittens your sister made you. Other items have cultural or universal meanings, like the moon or a knife or a handful of posies.
they affect you whether or not you are aware of their power, sometimes so far in the depths of your brain you never notice. Another version of this experiment used only smell. In 2005, Hank Arts at Utrecht University had subjects fill out a questionnaire. They were then rewarded with a cookie. One group sat in a room filled with the faint smell of cleaning products while another group smelled nothing. The group primed by the aroma in the clean-smelling room cleaned up after themselves three times more often. In a study by Ron Friedman where people were merely shown but not allowed to drink sports beverages or bottled water, those who just looked at sports drinks persisted longer in tasks of physical endurance. Priming works best when you are on autopilot, when you aren't trying to consciously introspect before choosing how to behave. When you are unsure how best to proceed, suggestions bubble up from the deep that are highly tainted by subconscious primes. In addition, your brain hates ambiguity and is willing to take shortcuts to remove it from any situation. If there is nothing else to go on, you will use what is available. When pattern recognition fails, you create patterns of your own. In the aforementioned experiments, there was nothing else for the brain to base its unconscious attitudes on, so it focused on the business items or the clean smells and ran with the ideas. The only problem was the conscious minds of the subjects didn't notice. You can't self-prime, not directly. Priming has to be unconscious, more specifically, it has to happen within what psychologists refer to as the adaptive unconscious a place largely inaccessible. When you are driving a car, the adaptive unconscious is performing millions of calculations, predicting every moment and accommodating, adjusting your mood and manipulating organs. It does the hard work, freeing up your conscious mind to focus on executive decisions. You are always of two minds at any one moment the higher level rational self and the lower level emotional self. Science author Jonah Lehrer wrote extensively about this division in his book How We Decide. Lehrer sees the two minds as equals who communicate and argue about what to do. Simple problems involving unfamiliar variables are best handled by the rational brain. They must be simple because you can juggle only four to nine bits of information in your conscious, rational mind at one time. For instance, look at this sequence of letters and then recite them out loud without looking, gave by Ursp Unless you've caught on, this is a really difficult task. Now chunk these letters into manageable portions like this, RKFBIIRSCBSUSSR. Look away now and try to recite them. It should be much easier. You just took 15 bits and reduced them to 5. You chunk all the time to better analyze your world. You reduce the complex rush of inputs into shorthand versions of reality. This is why the invention of written language was such an important step in your history it allowed you to take notes and preserve data outside the limited capacity of the rational mind. Without tools like pencils, computers, and slide rulers, the rational brain is severely hampered. The emotional brain, Lehrer argues, is older and thus more evolved than the rational brain. It is better suited for complex decisions and automatic processing of very complex operations like somersaults and break dancing, singing on key and shuffling cards. Those operations seem simple, but they have too many steps and variables for your rational mind to handle. You hand those tasks over to the adaptive unconscious. Animals with small cerebral cortices, or none at all, 
are mostly on autopilot because their older emotional brains are usually, or totally, in charge. The emotional brain, the unconscious mind, is old, powerful, and no less a part of who you are than the rational brain is, but its function can't be directly observed or communicated to consciousness. Instead, the output is mostly intuition and feeling. It is always there in the background CO processing your mental life. Lehrer's central argument is you know more than you know. You make the mistake of believing only your rational mind is in control, but your rational mind is usually oblivious to the influence of your unconscious. In this book I add another proposition, you are unaware of how unaware you are. In a hidden place your unconscious mind your experience is always being crunched so suggestions can be handed up to your conscious mind. Thanks to this, if a situation is familiar you can fall back on intuition. However, if the situation is novel, you will have to boot up your conscious mind. The spell of highway hypnosis on a long trip is always broken when you take an exit into unfamiliar territory. The same is true in any other part of your life. You are always drifting back and forth between the influence of emotion and reason, automaticity, and executive orders. Your true self is a much larger and more complex construct than you are aware of at any given moment. If your behavior is the result of priming, the result of suggestions as to how to behave handed up from the adaptive unconscious, you often invent narratives to explain your feelings and decisions and musings because you aren't aware of the advice you've been given by the mind behind the curtain in your head. When you hug someone you love and then feel the rush of warm emotions, you have made an executive decision which then influenced the older parts of your brain to deliver nice chemicals. Top-down influence makes intuitive sense and isn't disturbing to ponder. Bottom-up influence is odd. When you sit next to a briefcase and act more greedy than you usually would, it is as if your executive brain centers are nodding in agreement to hidden advisors whispering in your ear. It seems mysterious and creepy because it's so clandestine. Those who seek to influence you are sensitive to this, and try to avoid creating in you the uncomfortable realization that you have been duped. Priming works only if you aren't aware of it, and those who depend on priming to put food on the table work very hard to keep their influence hidden. Let's look at casinos, which are temples to priming. At every turn there are dings and musical notes, the clatter of coins rattling in metal buckets, symbols of wealth and opulence. Better still, casinos are sensitive to the power of the situation. Once you are inside, there are no indications of the time of day, no advertisements for anything not available inside the box of mutually beneficial primes, no reason to leave, whether to sleep, eat, or anything else no external priming allowed. Coca-Cola stumbled onto the power Santa Claus has to prime you during the holidays. Thoughts of childhood happiness and wholesome family values appear in your subconscious as you choose between Coke or a generic brand of soda. Grocery stores noticed an increase in sales when the smell of freshly baked bread primed people to buy more food. Adding the words all natural or including pictures of pastoral farms and crops primes you with thoughts of nature, dissuading thoughts of factories and chemical preservatives. Cable channels and large corporations prime potential audiences by adopting an image, a brand, so as to meet you halfway before you decide how to engage and judge them. Production companies spend millions of dollars to create trailers and movie posters to form first impressions so you are primed to enjoy their films in a certain way right up until the opening titles. 
Restaurants decorate their interiors to communicate everything from fine dining to psychedelic hippie communes in order to prime you to enjoy their cheese sticks. From every corner of the modern world advertisers are launching attacks on your unconscious in an attempt to prime your behavior to be more favorable for the bottom lines of their clients. Businesses discovered priming before psychologists did, but once psychology started digging into the mind, more and more examples of automaticity were uncovered, and even today it isn't clear how much of your behavior is under your conscious control. The question of who is truly in the driver's seat was made far more complex in 1996 by a series of studies. Published by John Bark in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. He had New York University students unscramble 30 separate five-word sentences. He told them he was interested in their language abilities, but he was really studying priming. He assembled three groups. One unscrambled sentences with terms associated with aggression and rudeness such as brazen, disturb, and bluntly. Another group unscrambled words from a bank of polite terms like courteous and behaved. A third group served as a control with words like gleefully, prepares, and exercising. The experimenters told the students how to complete the task and once they were done to come find them to receive the second assignment, but this was the real experiment. When each student approached the researcher he or she found him already engaged in a conversation with an actor who was pretending to be having trouble understanding the word puzzles. The researcher completely ignored the student until he or she interrupted the conversation or 10 minutes passed. The results? The polite word group waited on average 9.3 minutes to interrupt, the neutral group waited about 8.7 minutes, and the rude word group waited around 5.4 minutes. To the researcher's surprise, more than 80% of the polite word group waited the full 10 minutes. Only 35% of the rude word group chose not to intrude. The subjects were interviewed after the experiment and couldn't pinpoint why they chose to wait or to interrupt. The question never entered their minds because as far as they knew, their behavior had not been influenced. The scrambled sentences, they believed, had not affected them. In a second experiment, Barg had participants unscramble sentences that contained words associated with old age, like retired, wrinkled, and bingo. He then clocked participants' speed as they walked down a hall to an elevator and compared it to the speed they walked when they first strolled in. They took about one to two extra seconds to reach their destination. Just as with the rude word groups, the old word groups were primed by the ideas and associations the words created. To be sure this was really a result of priming, Barg repeated the experiment and got the same results. He ran it a third time with a control group who unscrambled words related to sadness to be sure he hadn't simply depressed people into walking slower. Once again, the old age group tottered along the longest. Barg also conducted a study in which Caucasian participants sat down at a computer to fill out boring questionnaires. Just before each section began, photos of either African-American or Caucasian men flashed on the screen for 13 milliseconds, faster than the participants could consciously process. Once they completed the task, the computer flashed an error message on the screen telling the participants they had to start over from the beginning. Those exposed to the images of African-Americans became hostile and frustrated more easily and more quickly than subjects who saw Caucasian faces. Even though they didn't believe themselves to be racist or to harbor negative stereotypes, 
the ideas were still in their neural networks and unconsciously primed them to behave differently than usual. Studies of priming suggest when you engage in deep introspection over the causes of your own behavior you miss many, perhaps most, of the influences accumulating on your persona like barnacles along the sides of a ship. Priming doesn't work if you see it coming, but your attention can't be focused in all directions at once. Much of what you think, feel, do, and believe is, and will continue to be, nudged one way or the other by unconscious primes from words, colors, objects, personalities, and other miscellany infused with meaning either from your personal life or the culture you identify with. Sometimes these primes are unintended, sometimes there is an agent on the other end who plotted against your judgment. Of course, you can choose to become an agent yourself. You can prime potential employers with what you wear to a job interview. You can prime the emotions of your guests with how you set the mood when hosting a party. Once you know priming is a fact of life, you start to understand the power and resilience of rituals and rites of passage, norms, and ideologies. Systems designed to prime persist because they work. Starting tomorrow, maybe with just a smile and a thank you, you can affect the way others feel hopefully for the best. Just remember, you are most open to suggestion when your mental cruise control is on or when you find yourself in unfamiliar circumstances. If you bring a grocery list, you'll be less likely to arrive at the checkout with a cart full of stuff you had no intention of buying when you left the house. If you neglect your personal space and allow chaos and clutter to creep in, it will affect you, and perhaps encourage further neglect. Positive feedback loops should improve your life not detract from it. You can't prime yourself directly, but you can create environments conducive to the mental states you wish to achieve. Just like the briefcase on the table, or the clean aroma in the room, you can fill your personal spaces with paraphernalia infused with meaning, or find meaning in the larger idea of owning little. No matter, when you least expect it, those meanings may nudge you. To confabulation the misconception, you know when you are lying to yourself. The truth, you are often ignorant of your motivations and create fictional narratives to explain your decisions, emotions, and history without realizing it. When a movie begins with the words based on a true story, what crosses your mind? Do you assume every line of dialogue, every bit of clothing and song in the background is the same as it was in the true event on which the film was based? Of course you don't. You know movies like Pearl Harbor or Aaron Brockovich take artistic license with facts, shaping them so a coherent story will unfold with a beginning, middle, and end. Even biopics about the lives of musicians or politicians who are still alive are rarely the absolute truth. Some things are left out, or some people are fused into single characters. The details, you think when watching, are less important than the big picture, the general idea. If only you were so savvy when it came to looking back on the biopic in your head, but you are not so smart. You see, the movie up there is just as dramatized, and scientists have known this for quite a while. It all starts with your brain's desire to fill in the gaps. Take your thumbs and place them side by side in front of you. Close your left eye and slowly move your right thumb away in a horizontal line to your right. Notice anything? Probably not. Somewhere along the line is your blind spot, the point where your optic nerve breaks into the retina. You have one per eye, 
and in this area of your vision you can't see anything. It is larger than you think to roughly 2% of your eyesight. If you want to see for yourself, take a blank sheet of paper and draw on it a dot about the size of a dime. Now, about 2 inches to the right, draw another. Close your left eye and focus on the left hand dot. Move the paper closer to you until the right hand dot disappears. There it is, one of your blind spots. Now look around the room with your eye closed. Try the same trick above with some words on this page. Notice anything? Is there a giant gap in your vision? Nope. Your brain fills it in with a bit of mental photoshopping. Whatever surrounds the blind spot is copied and pasted into the hole in an automatic imaginary bit of visual hocus pocus. Your brain lies to you, and you go about your business none the wiser. Just as the brain fills in your blind spot every moment of the day without your consciously noticing, so do you fill in the blind spots in your memory and your reasoning. Have you ever been telling a story about something you and someone else did long ago, and then they stop you to say, no, no, no. That's not how it happened, just as you get on a roll. You say it was at a Christmas party when you acted out the final episode of Lost with stockings on your hands, they say it was Easter. You remember opening presents and drinking eggnog, but they promise it was eggs and it wasn't even you. It was your cousin, and they used a chocolate bunny to represent the smoke monster. Consider how often this seems to happen, especially if you are in a relationship with someone who can call you out in this way all the time. Is it possible if you had a recording of everything you've ever done it would rarely match up with how you remember it? Think of all the photographs that have blown your mind when you saw yourself in a place you had completely deleted from memory. Think of all the things your parents bring back up about your childhood that you have zero recollection of, or which you remember differently. But you still have a sense of a continuous memory and experience. The details are missing, but the big picture of your own life persists. But the big picture is a lie, nurtured by your constant and unconscious confabulation, adding up to a story of who you are, what you have done, and why. You do this so much and so often that you can't be sure how much of what you consider to be the honest truth about your past is accurate. You can't be sure how you came to be reading these words at this moment instead of languishing on a street corner or sailing around the world. Why didn't you go in for the kiss? Why did you say those horrible things to your mother? Why did you buy that laptop? Why are you really angry with that guy? What is the truth about who you are and why you are here? To understand confabulation, we have to head into surgery. Every once in a while, in extreme cases where nothing else will work, doctors resort to splitting a patient's brain right down the middle. And what they discover is fascinating. To get a rough idea of how large and how halved your brain is, hold your hands out in front of you and form two fists. Now bring them together so that if you were wearing rings they would be facing upward. Each fist represents a hemisphere. Your two hemispheres communicate with each other via a dense series of nerve fibers called the corpus callosum. Imagine when you made those fists you grabbed two handfuls of yarn the yarn is your corpus callosum. In a corpus callosotomy, which is sometimes performed when a case of epilepsy becomes so severe and unmanageable that no drug will bring relief and normalcy that yarn is cut. The two halves of the brain are disconnected in a careful way that allows the patients to live out their lives with as much normalcy as possible.
Split brain patients seem fine from the outside. They are able to hold down jobs and carry their weight in conversation. But researchers who have looked deeper have discovered the strengths and weaknesses of the separate hemispheres with the help of split brain patients. Since the 1950s, studies with those who have undergone this procedure have revealed a great deal about how the brain works, but the insight most germane to the topic at hand is how quickly and unflinchingly these patients are capable of creating complete lies which they then hold to as reality. This is called split brain confabulation, but you don't have to have a split brain to confabulate. You feel like a single person with a single brain, but in many ways, you really have two. Thoughts, memories, and emotions cascade throughout the whole, but some tasks are handled better by one side than the other. Language, for example, is usually a task handled by the left side of the brain, but then bounced back and forth between the two. Strange things happen when a person's brain hemispheres are disconnected, making this transfer impossible. Psychologist Michael Gazaniga at the University of California at Santa Monica was one of the first researchers, along with Roger Sperry, to enlist the help of split-brain patients in his work. In one experiment subjects looked at a cross in the center of a computer screen, and then a word like truck was flashed on only the left side. They were then asked what they saw. Those with connected brains would, of course, say truck. Those with split brains would say they didn't know, but then, amazingly, if they were asked to draw with their left hand what they had seen, they easily doodled a truck. Oddly enough, your right hand is controlled by your left brain and your left hand by the right. What the left eye sees travels diagonally through the cranium into the right hemisphere and vice versa and these nerves are not severed when the brains are split point one normally this isn't a problem because what one side of the brain perceives and thinks gets transmitted to the other but a split brain can't say what they see when a scientist shows an image to the left visual field the language centers are in the other hemisphere across from where the image is being processed the part of their brain in charge of using words and sending them to the mouth can't tell the other side the one holding the pencil what it is looking at the side that saw the image can, however, draw it. Once the image appears, the split-brain person will then say, Oh, a truck. The communication that normally takes place across the corpus callosum now happens on the paper. This is what goes on in the world of a split-brain patient. The same thing happens in your head too. The same part of your brain is responsible for turning thoughts into words and then handing those words over to the mouth. All day long, the world appearing in your right hemisphere is being shared with your left in a conversation you are unaware of. At the biological level, this is a fundamental source of confabulation, and it can be demonstrated in the lab. If split-brain people are shown two words like bell on the left and music on the right and then asked to point out with their right hand in a series of four photos what they saw, they will point to the image with a bell in it. They will ignore other photos of a drummer, an organ, and a trumpet. The amazing confabulatory moment happens when they are asked why they chose the image. One split-brain patient said it was because the last music they heard was coming from the college's bell towers. The left eye saw a bell, and told the right hand to point to it, but the right side saw music and was now concocting a justification for ignoring the other pictures that were also related to the idea. The side of the brain in charge of speaking saw the other side point out the bell, but instead of saying it didn't know why, it made up a reason. 
The right side was no wiser, so it went along with the fabrication. The patients weren't lying, because they believed what they were saying. They deceived themselves and the researcher but had no idea they were doing so. They never felt confused or deceptive, they felt no different than you would. In one experiment a split-brain person was asked to perform an action only the right hemisphere could see, and the left hemisphere once again explained it away as if it knew the cause. The word walk was displayed, the subject stood. When the researcher asked why he got up, the subject said, I need to get a drink. Another experiment showed a violent scene to only the right hemisphere. The subject said she felt nervous and uneasy and blamed it on the way the room was decorated. The deeper emotional centers could still talk to both sides, but only the left hemisphere had the ability to describe what was bubbling up. This split-brain confabulation has been demonstrated many times over the years. When the left hemisphere is forced to explain why the right hemisphere is doing something, it often creates a fiction that both sides then accept. Remember though, your brain works in the same way you just have the benefit of a connection between the two halves to help buffer against misunderstandings, but they can still happen from time to time. Psychologist Alexander Luria compared consciousness to a dance and said the left hemisphere leads. Since it does all the talking, it sometimes has to do all the explaining. Split-brain confabulation is an extreme and amplified version of your own tendency to create narrative fantasies about just about everything you do, and then believe them. You are a confabulatory creature by nature. You are always explaining to yourself the motivations for your actions and the causes to the effects in your life, and you make them up without realizing it when you don't know the answers. Over time, these explanations become your idea of who you are and your place in the world. They are yourself. The neuroscientist V.S. Ramachandran once encountered a split-brain patient whose left hemisphere believed in God, but whose right hemisphere was an atheist. Essentially, as he put it, there were two people in one body two selves. Ramachandran believes your sense of self is partly the action of mirror neurons. These complex clusters of brain cells fire when you see someone hurt themselves or cry, when they scratch their arm or laugh. They put you in the other person's shoes so you can almost feel that person's pain and itches. Mirror neurons provide empathy and help you learn. One of the greatest discoveries in recent years was to find that mirror neurons fire also when you do things. It is as if part of your brain is observing yourself as an outsider. You are a story you tell yourself. You engage in introspection, and with great confidence you see the history of your life with all the characters and settings and you at the center as protagonist in the tale of who you are. This is all a great, beautiful confabulation without which you could not function. As you move through your day, you imagine a wide range of potential futures, potential situations outside your senses. When you read news articles and non-fiction books, you create fantasy worlds for situations that actually did happen. When you recall your past, you create it on the spot a daydream part true and part fantasy that you believe down to the last detail. If you were to lie back and imagine yourself sailing around the world, seeing all the wonders of the planet from one port to the next, you could with varying levels of detail imagine the entire globe from Paris to India, from Cambodia to Kansas, but you know you haven't actually taken this trip. And there are severe brain disorders where sufferers cannot sort out their own confabulations, 
patients with Korsakoff syndrome have amnesia surrounding recent events but can recall their past. They make up stories to replace their recent memories and believe them instead of becoming confused. If you were to ask someone with Korsakoff syndrome where they had been over the last few weeks, they might say they worked in the hospital's garage and need to get back to work when in reality they are patients receiving daily treatment in that same hospital. Anosognosia sufferers are paralyzed but won't admit it. They tell their doctors and loved ones they have severe arthritis or need to watch their weight if asked to move their incapacitated arm to take a piece of candy. They lie, but they don't know they are lying. The deception is only directed inward. They truly believe the fiction. A person with Capgras delusion believes their close friends and family have been replaced by imposters. The part of the brain that provides an emotional response when you see someone you know stops functioning properly in those with this dysfunction. They recognize their loved ones, but don't feel the spark. They make up a story to explain their confusion and accept it entirely. Those with Cotard's syndrome believe they have died. Those with this affliction will assume themselves to be spirits in an afterlife and believe the delusion so strongly they sometimes die of starvation. Psychologists have long assumed that you aren't aware of your higher cognitive processes, as Richard Nisbet and Timothy DeCamp Wilson at the University of Michigan suggested in their 1977 article for Psychological Review. In their paper they shot holes in the idea of introspection, saying you are rarely aware of the true stimuli that have led to your responses over the years, even from one day to the next. In one study, they write, subjects were asked to think of their mother's maiden name, Go ahead. You try. What is your mother's maiden name? The next question in the study was how did you come up with that? So how did you? You don't know. You just thought it. How your mind works is something you can never access, and although you often believe you understand your thoughts and actions, your emotions and motivations, much of the time you do not. The very act of looking inward is already several steps removed from the thoughts you are remembering. This, however, doesn't prevent you from assuming you really do know, you really can recall in full detail, and this is how narratives begin. This is how confabulation provides a framework from which to understand yourself. As the psychologist George Miller once said, it is the result of thinking, not the process of thinking, that appears spontaneously in consciousness. In other words, in many ways you are only reporting on what your mind has already produced instead of directing its performance. The flow of consciousness is one thing, the recollection of its course is another, yet you usually see them as the same. This is one of the oldest concepts in psychology and philosophy phenomenology. It was one of the first debates among researchers over just how deep psychology could delve into the mind. Since the early 1900s, Psychologists have wrestled with the conundrum of how, at a certain level, subjective experience can't be shared. For instance, what does red look like? What do tomatoes smell like? When you stub your toe, what does it feel like? What would you say if you had to explain any of these to someone who had never experienced them? How would you describe red to a person blind from birth or the scent of a fresh tomato to someone who had never smelled before? These are qualia, the deepest you can tunnel down into your experience before you hit rock. Most everyone has seen red but can't explain what it is like to do so. 
Your explanations of experience can build up from qualia but can't go any lower. These are the ineffable building blocks of consciousness. You can explain them only in relation to other experiences, but you can never completely describe the experience of qualia to another person, or yourself. There is more at work in your mind than you can access, beneath the rock there is more complexity to your thoughts and feelings than you can directly behold. For some behaviors, the antecedent is something old and evolved, a predilection passed down through thousands of generations of people like you trying to survive and thrive. You want to take a nap on a rainy afternoon because perhaps your ancestors sought shelter and safety in the same conditions. For other behaviors, the impetus may have come from something you simply didn't notice. You don't know why you feel like leaving in the middle of Thanksgiving dinner, but you come up with an explanation that seems to make sense at the time. Looking back, the explanation may change. Philosopher Daniel Dennett calls seeing yourself in this way heterophenomenology. Basically, he suggests when you explain why you feel the way you do, or why you behaved as you did, to take it with a grain of salt, as if you were listening to someone tell you about their night out. When you listen to someone else tell a story, you expect some embellishment and you know they are only telling you how the events seem to transpire to them. In the same way, you know how reality seems to be unfolding, how it seems to have unfolded in the past, but you should take your own perception with a grain of salt. In the Miller and Nisbet paper, they cited many studies in which people were aware of their thoughts but not how they arrived at them. Despite this, subjects usually had no problem providing an explanation, an introspection, which failed to address the true cause. In one, two groups were given electric shocks while they performed memory tasks. Both groups were then asked to run through the tasks again after the experiment ended. One group was told the second set of shocks was important in the pursuit of understanding the human mind. The other group was told the new round of shocks was just being used to satisfy the scientist's curiosity. The second group then performed better on the memory tasks, because they had to come up with their own motivation for continuing, which was to believe the shocks didn't hurt. In their minds the shocks really didn't hurt as much as they did for the first group, at least they said as much when interviewed later. In another study, Two groups of people who said they were very afraid of snakes were shown slides of snakes while listening to what they believed was their heart rate. Occasionally one group would see a slide with the word shock printed on it. They were given a jolt of electricity when they saw this slide, and the researchers falsely increased the sound of the beating of their hearts in the monitor. When they later were asked to hold a snake, they were far more likely to give it a shot than the group who didn't see the shock slide and hear a fake increase in heart rate. They had convinced themselves they were more afraid of being shocked than of snakes and then used this introspection to truly be less afraid. Nisbet and Miller set up their own study in a department store where they arranged nylon stockings side by side. When people came by, they asked them to say which of four items in a set was the best quality. Four to one, people chose the stocking on the right hand side even though they were all identical. When the researchers asked why, people would comment on the texture or the color, but never the position. When asked if the order of the presentation influenced their choice, they assured the scientists it had nothing to do with it. In these and many other studies the subjects never said they didn't know why they felt and acted as they did. Not knowing why didn't confuse them, 
they instead found justification for their thoughts, feelings, and actions and moved on, unaware of the machinery of their minds. How do you separate fantasy from reality? How can you be sure the story of your life both from long ago and minute to minute is true? There is a pleasant vindication to be found when you accept that you can't. No one can, yet we persist and thrive. Who you think you are is sort of like a movie based on true events, which is not necessarily a bad thing. The details may be embellished, but the big picture, the general idea, is probably a good story worth hearing about. 3. Confirmation Bias The misconception, your opinions are the result of years of rational, objective analysis. The truth, your opinions are the result of years of paying attention to information that confirmed what you believed, while ignoring information that challenged your preconceived notions. Have you ever had a conversation in which some old movie was mentioned, something like The Golden Child, or maybe even something more obscure? You laughed about it, quoted lines from it, wondered what happened to the actors you never saw again, and then you forgot about it. Until you are flipping channels one night and all of the sudden you see the golden child is playing. Weird. The next day you are reading a news story, and out of nowhere it mentions forgotten movies from the 1980s, and holy shit, there are three paragraphs about the golden child. You see a trailer that night at the theater for a new Eddie Murphy movie, and then you see a billboard on the street promoting Charlie Murphy doing stand-up in town, and then one of your friends sends you a link to a post at TMZ showing recent photos of the actress from The Golden Child. What is happening here? Is the universe trying to tell you something? No. This is how confirmation bias works. Since the conversation with your friends, you've flipped channels plenty of times, you've walked past lots of billboards, you've seen dozens of stories about celebrities, you've been exposed to a handful of movie trailers. The thing is, you disregarded all the other information, all the stuff unrelated to the golden child. Out of all the chaos, all the morsels of data, you noticed only the bits that called back to something sitting on top of your brain. A few weeks back, when Eddie Murphy and his Tibetan adventure were still submerged beneath a heap of pop culture at the bottom of your skull, you wouldn't have paid any special attention to references to it. If you are thinking about buying a particular make of new car, you suddenly see people driving that car all over the roads. If you just ended a long-time relationship, every song you hear seems to be written about love. If you are having a baby, you start to see babies everywhere. Confirmation bias is seeing the world through a filter. The examples above are a sort of passive version of the phenomenon. The real trouble begins when confirmation bias distorts your active pursuit of facts. Punditry is an industry built on confirmation bias. Rush Limbaugh and Keith Olbermann, Glenn Beck and Ariana Huffington, Rachel Maddow and Ann Coulter these people provide fuel for beliefs, they pre-filter the world to match existing worldviews. If their filter is like your filter, you love them. If it isn't, you hate them. You watch them not for information but for confirmation. Be careful. People like to be told what they already know. Remember that. They get uncomfortable when you tell them new things. New things well, new things aren't what they expect. They like to know that, say, a dog will bite a man. That is what dogs do. They don't want to know that man bites a dog, 
because the world is not supposed to happen like that. In short, what people think they want is news, but what they really crave is olds. Not news but olds, telling people that what they think they already know is true. Terry Pratchett through the character Lord Veterinary from his The Truth, a novel of Discworld during the 2008 U.S. presidential election, researcher Valdis Krebs at orgnet.com analyzed purchasing trends on Amazon. People who already supported Obama were the same people buying books that painted him in a positive light. People who already disliked Obama were the ones buying books painting him in a negative light. Just as with pundits, people weren't buying books for the information, they were buying them for the confirmation. Krebs has researched purchasing trends on Amazon and the clustering habits of people on social networks for years, and his research shows what psychological research into confirmation bias predicts. You want to be right about how you see the world, so you seek out information that confirms your beliefs and avoid contradictory evidence and opinions. Half a century of research has placed confirmation bias among the most dependable of mental stumbling blocks. Journalists looking to tell a certain story must avoid the tendency to ignore evidence to the contrary, scientists looking to prove a hypothesis must avoid designing experiments with little wiggle room for alternate outcomes. Without confirmation bias, conspiracy theories would fall apart. Did we really put a man on the moon? If you are looking for proof we didn't, you can find it. In a 1979 University of Minnesota study by Mark Snyder and Nancy Cantor, people read about a week in the life of an imaginary woman named Jane. Throughout the week, Jane did things that showcased she could be extroverted in some situations and introverted in others. A few days passed. The subjects were asked to return. Researchers divided the people into groups and asked them to help decide if Jane would be suited for a particular job. One group was asked if she would be a good librarian, the other group was asked if she would be a good real estate agent. In the librarian group, people remembered Jane as an introvert. In the real estate group, they remembered her being an extrovert. After this, when each group was asked if she would be good at the other profession, people stuck with their original assessment, saying she wasn't suited for the other job. The study suggests even in your memories you fall prey to confirmation bias, recalling those things that support even recently arrived at beliefs and forgetting those things that contradict them. An Ohio State study in 2009 showed people spend 36% more time reading an essay if that essay aligns with their opinions. Another study at Ohio State in 2009 showed subjects clips of the parody show The Colbert Report, and people who considered themselves politically conservative consistently reported Colbert only pretends to be joking and genuinely meant what he said. Over time, by never seeking the antithetical, through accumulating subscriptions to magazines, stacks of books, and hours of television, you can become so confident in your worldview that no one can dissuade you. Remember there's always someone out there willing to sell eyeballs to advertisers by offering a guaranteed audience of people looking for validation. Ask yourself if you are in that audience. In science, you move closer to the truth by seeking evidence to the contrary. Perhaps the same method should inform your opinions as well. For hindsight bias the misconception, after you learn something new, you remember how you were once ignorant or wrong. The truth, you often look back on the things you've just learned and assume you knew them or believed them all along. I knew they were going to lose. 
That's exactly what I thought was going to happen. I saw this coming. That's just common sense. I had a feeling you might say that. How many times have you said something similar and believed it? Here's the thing, you tend to edit your memories so you don't seem like such a dimwit when things happen you couldn't have predicted. When you learn things you wish you had known all along, you go ahead and assume you did know them. This tendency is just part of being a person, and it is called the hindsight bias. Take a look at the results of this study. A recent study by researchers at Harvard shows as people grow older they tend to stick to old beliefs and find it difficult to accept conflicting information about topics they are already familiar with. The findings seem to suggest you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Of course the study showed this. You've known this your whole life, it's common knowledge. Consider this study, a study out of the University of Alberta shows older people, with years of wisdom and a virtual library of facts from decades of exposure to media, find it much easier to finish a four-year degree ahead of time than an 18-year-old who has to contend with an unfinished, still-growing brain. The findings show you are never too old to learn. Wait a second. That seems like common knowledge too. So which is it you can't teach an old dog new tricks, or you are never too old to learn? Actually, I made both of these up. Neither one is a real study. Using fake studies is a favorite way of researchers to demonstrate hindsight bias. Both of them seemed probable because when you learn something new, you quickly redact your past so you can feel the comfort of always being right. In 1986, Carl Teigen, now at the University of Oslo, did a study in which he asked students to evaluate proverbs. Teigen gave participants famous sayings to evaluate. When participants were given adages, like you can't judge a book by its cover, they tended to agree with the wisdom. What would you say? Is it fair to say you can't judge a book by its cover? From experience, can you remember times when this was true? What about the expression if it looks like a duck, swims like a duck, and quacks like a duck, then it probably is a duck. Seems like common sense too, hey? So which is it? In Tigan's study, most people agreed with all the proverbs he showed them, and then agreed once again when he read to them proverbs that stated opposing views. When he asked them to evaluate the phrase love is stronger than fear, they agreed with it. When he presented them the opposite, fear is stronger than love, they agreed with that too. He was trying to show how what you think is just common sense usually isn't. Often. When students and journalists and lay people hear about the results of a scientific study, they agree with the findings and say, yeah, no shit. Tigan showed this is just hindsight bias at work. You are always looking back at the person you used to be, always reconstructing the story of your life to better match the person you are today. You have needed to keep a tidy mind to navigate the world ever since you lived in jungles and on savannas. Cluttered minds got bogged down and the bodies they controlled got eaten. Once you learn from your mistakes, or replace bad info with good, there isn't much use in retaining the garbage, so you delete it. This deletion of your old, incorrect assumptions declutters your mind. Sure, you are lying to yourself, but it's for a good cause. You take all you know about a topic, all you can conjure up on the spot, and construct a mental model. Right before President Nixon left for China, 
a researcher asked people what they thought the chances were for certain things to happen on his trip. Later, once the trip was over, knowing the outcomes, people remembered their statistical assumptions as being far more accurate than they were. The same thing happened with people who felt that another terrorist attack was likely after 9-11. When no attack happened, these people recalled having made much lower estimates of the risk of another attack. Hindsight bias is a close relative of the availability heuristic. You tend to believe anecdotes and individual sensational news stories are more representative of the big picture than they are. If you see lots of shark attacks in the news, you think, gosh, sharks are out of control. What you should think is, gosh, the news loves to cover shark attacks. The availability heuristic shows you make decisions and think thoughts based on the information you have at hand, while ignoring all the other information that might be out there. You do the same thing with hindsight bias, by thinking thoughts and making decisions based on what you know now, not what you used to know. Knowing hindsight bias exists should arm you with healthy skepticism when politicians and businessmen talk about their past decisions. Also, keep it in mind the next time you get into a debate online or an argument with a boyfriend or girlfriend, husband or wife the other person really does think he or she was never wrong, and so do you. 5. The Texas Sharpshooter Fallacy The Misconception You take randomness into account when determining cause and effect. The truth you tend to ignore random chance when the results seem meaningful or when you want a random event to have a meaningful cause. Abraham Lincoln and John F. Kennedy were both presidents of the United States, elected 100 years apart. Both were shot and killed by assassins who were known by three names with 15 letters, John Wilkes Booth and Lee Harvey Oswald, and neither killer would make it to trial. Spooky, hey? It gets better. Kennedy had a secretary named Lincoln. They were both killed on a Friday while sitting next to their wives, Lincoln in the Ford Theater, Kennedy in a Lincoln made by Ford. Both men were succeeded by a man named Johnson Andrew for Lincoln and Lyndon for Kennedy. Andrew was born in 1808, Lyndon in 1908. What are the odds? In 1898, Morgan Robertson wrote a novel titled Futility. Given that it was written 14 years before the Titanic sank, 11 years before construction on the vessel even began, the similarities between the book and the real event are eerie. The novel describes a giant boat called the Titan which everyone considers unsinkable. It is the largest ever created, and inside, it seems like a luxury hotel just like the as yet unbuilt Titanic. Titan had only 20 lifeboats, half of what it would need should the great ship sink. The Titanic had 24, also half what it needed. In the book, the Titan hits an iceberg in April 400 miles from Newfoundland. The Titanic, years later, would do the same in the same month in the same place. The Titan sinks, and more than half of the passengers die, just as with the Titanic. The number of people on board who die in the book and the number in the future accident are nearly identical. The similarities don't stop there. The fictional Titan and the real Titanic both had three propellers and two masts. Both had a capacity of 3,000 people. Both hit the iceberg close to midnight. Did Robertson have a premonition? I mean, what are the odds? In the 1500s, Nostradamus wrote, 
Vitez Ferruches de Fame Fluves Traner Plus Part du Champ Encore Hister Sira, and Cake de Fer Le Grand Sira Trisner, Quandrine Enfant de Germain Observa. This is often translated to, Beasts wild with hunger will cross the rivers, the greater part of the battle will be against Hister. He will cause great men to be dragged in a cage of iron, when the son of Germany obeys no law. That's rather creepy, considering that it seems to describe a guy with a tiny mustache born about 400 years later. Here is another prophecy, out of the deepest part of the west of Europe, from poor people a young child shall be born, who with his tongue shall seduce many people, his fame shall increase in the eastern kingdom. Wow! Hister certainly sounds like Hitler, and that second quatrain seems to drive it home. Actually, Many of Nostradamus's predictions are about a guy from Germania who wages a great war and dies mysteriously. What are the odds? If any of this seems too amazing to be coincidence, too odd to be random, too similar to be chance, you are not so smart. Allow me to explain. Say you go on a date, and the other person reveals he or she drives the same kind of car you do. It's a different color, but the same model. Well, that's sort of neat, but nothing amazing. Let's say later on you learn your date's mom's name is the same as your mom's, and your mother's have the same birthday. Hold on a second. That's pretty cool. Maybe the hand of fate is pushing you toward the other person. Later still, you find out you both own the box set of Monty Python's Flying Circus, and you both grew up loving rescue rangers. You both love pizza, but hate rutabagas. This is meant to be, you think. You are made for each other. But, take a step back. Now take another. How many people in the world own that model of car? You are. Both about the same age, so your mothers are too, and their names were probably common in their time. Since you and your date have similar backgrounds and grew up in the same decade, you probably share the same childhood TV shows. Everyone loves Monty Python. Everyone loves pizza. Many people hate rutabagas. Looking at the factors from a distance, you can accept the reality of random chance. You are lulled by the signal. You forget about noise. With meaning, you overlook randomness, but meaning is a human construction. You have just committed the Texas sharpshooter fallacy. The fallacy gets its name from imagining a cowboy shooting at a barn. Over time, the side of the barn becomes riddled with holes. In some places there are lots of them, in others there are few. If the cowboy later paints a bullseye over a spot where his bullet holes clustered together, it looks like he is pretty good with a gun. By painting a bullseye over a cluster of bullet holes, the cowboy places artificial order over natural random chance. If you have a human brain, you do this all of the time. Picking out clusters of coincidence is a predictable malfunction of normal human logic. When you are dazzled by the idea of Nostradamus predicting Hitler, you ignore how he wrote almost 1,000 ambiguous predictions, and most of them make no sense at all. He seems even less interesting when you find out Hister is the Latin name for the Danube River. When you marvel at the similarities between the Titan and the Titanic, you disregard that in the novel only 13 people survived, and the ship sank right away, and the mm -hmm. Titan had made many voyages, and it had sails. In the novel, one of the survivors fought a polar bear before being rescued. 
when you are befuddled by the Lincoln and Kennedy connections, you neglect to notice Kennedy was Catholic and Lincoln was born Baptist. Kennedy was killed with a rifle, Lincoln with a pistol. Kennedy was shot in Texas, Lincoln in Washington, D.C. Kennedy had lustrous auburn hair, while Lincoln wore a haberdasher's wet dream. With all three examples there are thousands of differences, all of which you ignored, but when you draw the bullseye around the clusters, the similarities will. If hindsight bias and confirmation bias had a baby, it would be the Texas sharpshooter fallacy. When reality shows are filmed, the producers have hundreds of hours of footage. When they condense that footage into an hour, they paint a bullseye around a cluster of holes. They find a narrative in all the mundane moments, extracting the good bits and tossing aside the rest. This means they can create any orderly story they wish from their reserves of chaos. Was that one girl really a horrific bitch? Was that guy with the gelled hair and fake tan really that dumb? Unless you can pull back and see the entire barn, you'll never know. The reach of the fallacy is far greater than reality shows, presidential trivia, and spooky coincidences. When you use the sharpshooter fallacy to determine cause from effect, it can harm people. One of the reasons scientists form a hypothesis and then try to disprove it with new research is to avoid the Texas sharpshooter fallacy. Epidemiologists are especially wary of it as they study the factors that lead to the spread of disease. If you look at a map of the United States with dots assigned to where cancer rates are highest, you will notice areas of clumping. It looks like you have a pretty good indication of where the groundwater must be poisoned, or where high-voltage power lines are bombarding people with damaging energy fields, or where cell phone towers are frying people's organs, or where nuclear bombs must have been tested. A map like that is a lot like the site of the sharpshooter's barn, and presuming there must be a cause for cancer clusters is the same as drawing bullseyes around them. More often than not, cancer clusters have no scary environmental cause. There are many agents at work. People who are related tend to live near one another. Old people tend to retire in the same areas. Eating, smoking, and exercise habits tend to be similar region to region. And, after all, one in three people will develop cancer in his or her lifetime. To accept that things like residential cancer clusters are often just coincidence is deeply unsatisfying. The powerlessness, the feeling you are defenseless to the whims of chance, can be assuaged by singling out an antagonist. Sometimes you need a bad guy, and the Texas sharpshooter fallacy is one way you can create one. According to the Centers for Disease Control the number of autism cases among 8-year-olds increased 57% from 2002 to the 2006. Looking back over the last 20 years, the rate of autism has gone up 200%. Today, 1 in 70 male children has some form of autism spectrum disorder. It seemed absolutely nuts when those numbers were first released. Parents around the world panicked. Something must be causing autism numbers to rise, right? Early on, a bullseye was painted around vaccines because symptoms seemed to show up about the same time as kids were getting vaccinated. Once they had a target, a cluster, people failed to see all the other correlations. After years of research and millions of dollars, vaccines have been ruled out, but many refuse to accept the findings. Singling out vaccines while ignoring the millions of other factors is the same as noting the Titan hit an iceberg but omitting it had sails. 
lucky streaks at the casino, hot hands in basketball, a tornado sparing a church these are all examples of humans finding meaning after the fact, after the odds are tallied and the numbers have moved on. You are ignoring the times you lost, the times the ball missed the basket, and all the homes the tornado blindly devoured. In World War II, Londoners took notice when bombing raids consistently missed certain neighborhoods. People began to believe German spies lived in the spared buildings. They didn't. Analysis afterward by psychologists Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky showed the bombing strike patterns were random. Anywhere people are searching for meaning, you will see the Texas sharpshooter fallacy. For many, the world loses luster when you accept the idea that random mutations can lead to eyeballs or random burn patterns on toast can look like a person's face. If you were to shuffle a deck and draw out 10 cards, the chances of the sequence you drew coming up are in the trillions, no matter what the cards are. If you drew out an ordered suit, it would be astonishing, but the chances are the same as any other set of 10 cards. The meaning is a human construct. Look outside. See that tree? The chances of it growing there on that spot, on this planet, circling this star, in this galaxy, among the billions of galaxies in the known universe, are so incredibly small it seems to have meaning, but that meaning is only a figment of your imagination. You are drawing a bullseye around a cluster on a vast barn. The odds of it being there are no less astronomical than the odds of it being in the patch of dirt beside it. The same is true if you looked out onto a desert and found a lizard, or into the sky and found a cloud, or into space and saw nothing but hydrogen atoms floating alone. There is a 100% chance something will be there, be anywhere, when you look, only the need for meaning changes how you feel about what you see. To admit the messy slog of chaos, disorder, and random chance rules your life, rules the universe itself, is a painful conceit. You commit the Texas sharpshooter fallacy when you need a pattern to provide meaning, to console you, to lay blame. You mow your lawn, arrange your silverware, comb your hair. Whenever possible, you oppose the forces of entropy and thwart their relentless derangement. Your drive to do this is primal. You need order. Order makes it easier to be a person, to navigate this sloppy world. For ancient man, pattern recognition led to food and protected people from harm. You are able to read these words because your ancestors recognized patterns and changed their behavior to better acquire food and avoiding becoming it. Evolution has made us into beings looking for clusters where chance events have built up like sand into dunes. Carl Sagan said in the vastness of space and the immensity of time it was a joy to share a planet and epic with his wife. Even though he knew fate didn't put them together, it didn't take away the wonder he felt when he was with her. You see patterns everywhere, but some of them are formed by chance and mean nothing. Against the noisy background of probability things are bound to line up from time to time for no reason at all. It's just how the math works out. Recognizing this is an important part of ignoring coincidences when they don't matter and realizing what has real meaning for you on this planet, in this epoch. 6. Procrastination The misconception, you procrastinate because you are lazy and can't manage your time well. The truth. Procrastination is fueled by weakness in the face of impulse and a failure to think about thinking. Netflix reveals something about your own behavior you should have noticed by now, something that keeps getting between you and the things you want to accomplish. 
If you have Netflix, especially if you stream it to your TV, you tend to gradually accumulate a cache of hundreds of films you think you'll watch one day. Take a look at your queue. Why are there so damn many documentaries and dramatic epics collecting virtual dust in there? By now you could draw the cover art to Dead Man Walking from memory. Why do you keep passing over it? Psychologists actually know the answer to this question, to why you keep adding movies you will never watch to your growing collection of future rentals, and it's the same reason you believe you will eventually do what's best for yourself in all the other parts of your life, but rarely do. A study conducted in 1999 by Reed, Lowenstein, and Kalian Arman had people pick three movies out of a selection of 24. Some were lowbrow, like Sleepless in Seattle or Mrs. Doubtfire. Some were highbrow, like Schindler's List or The Piano. In other words, it was a choice between movies that promised to be fun and forgettable and those that would be memorable but required more effort to absorb. After picking, the subjects had to watch one movie right away. They then had to watch another in two days and a third two days after that. Most people picked Schindler's List as one of their three. They knew it was a great movie because all of their friends said it was, and it had earned dozens of the highest awards. Most didn't, however, choose to watch it on the first day. Instead, people tended to pick lowbrow movies on the first day. Only 44% went for the heavier stuff first. The majority tended to pick comedies, like The Mask, or action flicks, like Speed, when they knew they had to watch their choice forthwith. Planning ahead, people picked highbrow movies 63% of the time for their second movie and 71% of the time for their third. When they ran the experiment again but told subjects they had to watch all three selections back shoeback. Schindler's list was 13 times less likely to be chosen at all. The researchers had a hunch people would go for the junk food first, but plan healthy meals in the future. Many studies over the years have shown you tend to have time inconsistent preferences. When asked if you would rather have fruit or cake one week from now, you will usually say fruit. A week later, when the slice of German chocolate and the apple are offered, you are statistically more likely to go for the cake. This is why your Netflix queue is full of great films you keep passing over for Family Guy. With Netflix, the choice of what to watch right now and what to watch later is like candy bars versus carrot sticks. When you are making plans, your better angels point to the nourishing choices, but in the moment you go for what tastes good. This is sometimes called present bias being unable to grasp that what you want will change over time, and what you want now isn't the same thing you will want later. Present bias explains why you buy lettuce and bananas only to throw them out later when you forget to eat them. This is why when you are a kid you wonder why adults don't own more toys. Present bias is why you've made the same resolution for the 10th year in a row, but this time you mean it. You are going to lose weight and forge a six-pack of ABS so ripped you can deflect arrows. You weigh yourself. You buy a workout DVD. You order a set of weights. One day you have the choice between going for a run or watching a movie, and you choose the movie. Another day you are out with friends and can choose a cheeseburger or a salad. You choose the cheeseburger. The slips become more frequent, but you keep saying you'll get around to it. You'll start again on Monday, which becomes a week from Monday. Your will succumbs to a death by a thousand cuts. By the time winter comes, 
it looks like you already know what your resolution will be the next year. Procrastination manifests itself within every aspect of your life. You wait until the last minute to buy Christmas presents. You put off seeing the dentist, or getting that thing checked out by the doctor, or filing your taxes. You forget to register to vote. You need to get an oil change. There is a pile of dishes getting higher in the kitchen. Shouldn't you wash clothes now so you don't have to waste a Sunday cleaning everything you own? Perhaps the stakes are higher than choosing to play Angry Birds instead of doing sit UPS. You might have a deadline for a grant proposal, or a dissertation, or a book. You'll get around to it. You'll start tomorrow. You'll take the time to learn a foreign language, to learn how to play an instrument. There's a growing list of books you will read one day. Before you do though, maybe you should check your email. You should head over to Facebook too, just to get it out of the way. A cup of coffee would probably get you going, it won't take long to go grab one. Maybe just a few episodes of that show you like. You can try to fight it back. You can buy a daily planner and a to-do list application for your phone. You can write yourself notes and fill out schedules. You can become a productivity junkie surrounded by instruments to make life more efficient, but these tools alone will not help, because the problem isn't you are a bad manager of your time you are a bad tactician in the war inside your brain. Procrastination is such a pervasive element of the human experience there are more than 600 books for sale promising to snap you out of your bad habits, and this year alone 120 new books on the topic were published. Obviously this is a problem everyone admits to, so why is it so hard to defeat? To explain, consider the power of marshmallows. Walter Mischel conducted experiments at Stanford University throughout the late 1960s and early 1970s in which he and his researchers offered a bargain to children. The kids sat at a table in front of a bell and some treats. They could pick a pretzel, a cookie, or a giant marshmallow. They told the little boys and girls they could either eat the treat right away or wait a few minutes. If they waited, they would double their payoff and get two treats. If they couldn't wait, they had to ring the bell, after which the researcher would end the experiment. Some made no attempt at self-control and just ate right away. Others stared intensely at the object of their desire until they gave in to temptation. Many writhed in agony, twisting their hands and feet while looking away. Some made silly noises. In the end, one-third couldn't resist. What started as an experiment about delayed gratification has now, decades later, yielded a far more interesting set of revelations about metacognition thinking about thinking. Michel has followed the lives of all his subjects through high school, college, and into adulthood, where they accumulated children, mortgages, and jobs. The revelation from this research is kids who were able to overcome their desire for short-term reward in favor of a better outcome later weren't smarter than the other kids, nor were they less gluttonous. They just had a better grasp of how to trick themselves into doing what was best for them. They watched the wall instead of looking at the food. They tapped their feet instead of smelling the confection. The wait was torture for all, but some knew it was going to be impossible to just sit there and stare at the delicious, gigantic marshmallow without giving in. The ones who were better at holding off their desire to snatch the marshmallow used that same power to squeeze more out of life. 
the ones who rang the bell quickly showed a higher incidence of behavioral problems. The ones who could hold out ended up with SAT scores that were on average more than 200 points higher than scores for the ones who ate the marshmallow. Thinking about thinking this is the key. In the struggle between should versus want, some people have figured out something crucial, want never goes away. Procrastination is all about choosing want over should because you don't have a plan for those times when you can expect to be tempted. You are really bad at predicting your future mental states. In addition, you are terrible at choosing between now and later. Later is a murky place where anything could go wrong. If I were to offer you $50 now or $100 in a year, which would you take? Clearly, you'll take the $50 now. After all, who knows what could happen in a year, right? Okay, so what if I instead offered you $50 in 5 years or $100 in 6 years? Nothing has changed other than adding a delay, but now it feels just as natural to wait for the $100. After all, you already have to wait a long time. A being of pure logic would think, more is more, and pick the higher amount every time, but you aren't a being of pure logic. Faced with two possible rewards, you are more likely to take the one that you can enjoy now over one you will enjoy later even if the later reward is far greater. In the moment, rearranging the folders on your computer seems a lot more rewarding than some task due in a month which might cost you your job or your diploma, so you wait until the night before. If you considered which would be more valuable in a month continuing to get your paycheck or having an immaculate desktop you would pick the greater reward. The tendency to get more rational when you are forced to wait is called hyperbolic discounting, because your dismissal of the better payoff later diminishes over time and makes a nice slope on a graph. Evolutionarily it makes sense to always go for the sure bet now, your ancestors didn't have to think about retirement or heart disease. Your brain evolved in a world where you probably wouldn't live to meet your grandchildren. The stupid monkey part of your brain wants to gobble up candy bars and go deeply into debt. Hyperbolic discounting makes later an easy place to throw all the things you don't want to deal with, but you also overcommit to future plans for the same reason. You run out of time to get things done because you think in the future, that mysterious fantastical realm of possibilities, you'll have more free time than you do now. One of the best ways to see how bad you are at coping with procrastination is to notice how you deal with deadlines. Let's imagine you are in a class where you must complete three research papers in three weeks, and the instructor is willing to allow you to set your own due dates. You can choose to turn in your papers once a week, or two in the first week and one in the second. You can turn them all in on the last day, or you can spread them out. You could even choose to turn in all three at the end of the first week and be done. It's up to you, but once you pick you have to stick with your choice. If you miss your deadlines, you get a big fat. Zero. How would you pick? The most rational choice would be the last day for every paper. It gives you plenty of time to work hard on all three and turn in the best possible work. This seems like a wise choice, but you are not so smart. The same choice was offered to a selection of students in a 2002 study conducted by Klaus Wurtenbrock and Dan Ariely. They set up three classes, and each had three weeks to finish three papers. Class A had to turn in all three papers on the last day of class, Class B had to pick three different deadlines and stick to them, and Class C had to turn in one paper a week. 
which class had the better grades. Class C, the one with three specific deadlines, did the best. Class B, which had to pick deadlines ahead of time but had complete freedom, did the second best, and the group whose only deadline was the last day, Class A, did the worst. Students who could pick any three deadlines tended to spread them out at about one week apart on their own. They knew they would procrastinate, so they set up zones in which they would be forced to perform. Still, overly optimistic outliers who either waited until the last minute or chose unrealistic goals pulled down the overall class grade. Students with no guidelines at all tended to put off their work until the last week for all three papers. The ones who had no choice and were forced to spread out their procrastination did the best because the outliers were eliminated. Those people who weren't honest with themselves about their own tendencies to put off their work or who were too confident didn't have a chance to fool themselves. If you fail to believe you will procrastinate or become idealistic about how awesome you are at working hard and managing your time, you never develop a strategy for outmaneuvering your own weakness. Procrastination is an impulse, it's buying candy at the checkout. Procrastination is also hyperbolic discounting taking the sure thing in the present over the collisionous prospects someday far away. You must be adept at thinking about thinking to defeat yourself at procrastination. You must realize there is the you who sits there now reading this, and there is the you sometime in the future who will be influenced by a different set of ideas and desires, a you for whom an alternate palette of brain functions will be available for painting reality. The now you may see the costs and rewards at stake when it comes time to choose studying for the test instead of going to the club, eating the salad instead of the cupcake, writing the article instead of playing the video game. The trick is to accept that the now you will not be the person facing those choices, it will be the future you a person who can't be trusted. Future you will give in, and then you will go back to being now you and feel weak and ashamed. Now you must trick future you into doing what is right for both parties. This is why food plans like Nutrisystem work for many people. Now you commits to spending a lot of money on a giant box of food that future you will have to deal with. People who get this concept use programs like Freedom, which disables internet access on a computer for up to 8 hours, a tool allowing now you to make it impossible for future you to sabotage your work. Capable psychonauts who think about thinking, about states of mind, about set and setting, can get things done not because they have more willpower or drive, but because they know productivity is a game played against a childish primal human predilection for pleasure and novelty that can never be excised from the soul. Your effort is better spent outsmarting yourself than making empty promises through plugging dates into a calendar or setting deadlines for push UPS. 7. Normalcy Bias The Misconception your fight-or-flight instincts kick in and you panic when disaster strikes. The truth, you often become abnormally calm and pretend everything is normal in a crisis. If you knew a horrific mile-wide force of nature was headed toward your home, what would you do? Would you call your loved ones? Would you head outside and look for the oncoming storm? Would you leap into a bathtub and cover yourself with a mattress? No matter what you encounter in life, your first analysis of any situation is to see it in the context of what is normal for you and then compare and contrast the new information against what you know usually happens. Because of this, you have a tendency to interpret strange and alarming situations as if they were just part of business as usual. For three days in 1999, 
a series of horrific tornadoes scrubbed clean the Oklahoma countryside. Among them was a monster force of nature later called the Bridge Creek Moor F5. The F5 part of the name comes from the enhanced Fujita scale. It goes from EF1 to EF5 and measures the intensity of a twister. Less than 1% of tornadoes ever reach the top level. At 4, cars go airborne and whole houses are leveled. To reach level 5 on the enhanced Fujita scale, a tornado's winds must exceed 200 miles per hour. The winds in Bridge Creek Moor reached 320. Warnings were issued 13 minutes in advance, yet many people did nothing as the monster approached. They milled around and hoped the killer would spare them. They didn't attempt to run for safety. In the end, the beast destroyed 8,000 homes and killed 36 people. Many more would surely have perished if there had been no warning at all. For instance, a similar twister in 1925 killed 695. So, given there was a warning, why did some people not heed the call to action and seek shelter from the Colossus? The tendency to flounder in the face of danger is well understood and expected among tornado chasers and meteorologists. Tales of those who choose to ride out hurricanes and tornado spewing storm clouds are common. Weather experts and emergency management workers know you can become enveloped in a blanket of calm when terror enters your heart. Psychologists refer to it as normalcy bias. First responders call it negative panic. This strange counterproductive tendency to forget self-preservation in the event of an emergency is often factored into fatality predictions in everything from ship sinkings to stadium evacuations. Disaster movies get it all wrong. When you and others are warned of danger, you don't evacuate immediately while screaming and flailing your arms. In his book Big Weather, tornado chaser Mark Svenvold wrote about how contagious normalcy bias can be. He recalled how people often tried to convince him to chill out while fleeing from impending doom. He said even when tornado warnings were issued, people assumed it was someone else's problem. Stakeholding peers, he said, would try to shame him into denial so they could remain calm. They didn't want him deflating their attempts at feeling normal. Normalcy bias flows into the brain no matter the scale of the problem. It will appear whether you have days and plenty of warning or are blindsided with only seconds between life and death. Imagine you are in a Boeing 747 airplane as it touches down after a long flight. You hide a sigh of relief once the ground ceases to rush closer and you hear the landing gear chirp against the runway. You release the hand rests as the engines power down. You sense the bustle of 400 people preparing to leave. The tedious process of taxiing to the terminal begins. You play back some of the moments on the giant plane, thinking how it was a pleasant flight with few bumps and nice people all around. You are already collecting your things and getting ready to remove your seat belt. You look out the window and try to make out something familiar in the fog. Without warning, shock waves of heat and pressure tear into your flesh. A terrible blast rattles your organs and tears at all corners of the plane. A noise like two trains colliding under your chin bursts eardrums up and down the aisles. An explosion tunnels through the spaces around you, filling every gap and crevice with streamers of flame surging down the aisles and over your head, under your feet. They recede just as quickly, leaving unbearable heat. Clumps of your hair crumple into ashes. Now all you hear is the crackle of fire. 
Imagine you are sitting on this plane now. The top of the craft is gone and you can see the sky above you. Columns of flame are growing. Holes in the sides of the airliner lead to freedom. How would you react? You probably think you would leap to your feet and yell, let's get the hell out of here. If not this, then you might assume you would coil into a fetal position and freak out. Statistically, neither of these is likely. What you would probably do is far weirder. In 1977, on an island in the Canaries called Tenerife, a series of mistakes led to two enormous 747 passenger planes colliding with each other as one attempted takeoff. A Pan Am aircraft with 496 people on board was taxiing along the runway in dense fog when a Dutch KLM flight with 248 inside asked to be cleared for takeoff on the same airstrip. The fog was so thick the KLM crew couldn't see the other airplane, and both were invisible to the control tower. The crew misheard their instructions. Thinking they had just been given permission, they began to speed toward the other plane. Air traffic controllers tried to warn them, but radio interference garbled the messages. Too late, the captain of the KLM flight saw the other craft ahead of him. He pulled up hard, dragging the tail along the ground, but couldn't take flight. He screamed as half of the KLM aircraft smashed into the Pan Am at 160 miles per hour. The KLM airplane bounced off the Pan Am jet, soared for 500 feet, and then tumbled in a terrible jet fuel explosion. Everyone on board disintegrated. The fire was so intense it would burn until the next day. Rescue crews spilled out onto the tarmac, but they didn't drive out to the Pan Am flight. Instead, they rushed to the flaming wreckage of the KLM plane. For 20 minutes, in the chaos, firefighters and emergency personnel thought they were dealing with only one problem and believed the flames peeking out from the fog in the distance were just more wreckage. The survivors on board the Pan Am flight would not be rescued. The engines were still running at full power because the pilot had attempted to turn at the last second, and the crew couldn't switch them off because the wires had been severed. The crash sheared away most of the top half of the 747. People lay in pieces from the impact. Flames spread through the carnage. A massive fire began to take over the plane. Smoke filled the fuselage. To live, people had to act quickly. They had to unbuckle, move through the chaos onto the intact wing, and then jump 20 feet onto wreckage. Escape was possible, but not all of the survivors would attempt it. Some bolted into action, unbuckled loved ones and strangers and pushed them out to safety. Others stayed put and were consumed. Soon after, the center fuel tank exploded, killing all but the 70 people who had made their way outside. According to Amanda Ripley's book, The Unthinkable, investigators later said the survivors of the initial impact had one minute before the fire took them. In that one minute, Several dozen people who could have escaped failed to take action, failed to break free of paralysis. Why did so many people flounder when seconds mattered? Psychologist Daniel Johnson has rigorously studied this strange behavior. In his research he interviewed survivors of the Tenerife crash among many other disasters, including skyscraper fires and sinking ships, to better understand why some people flee when others do not. In Johnson's interview with Paul and Floy Heck, both passengers on the Pan Am flight, 
they recalled not only their traveling companions sitting motionless as they hustled to find a way out, but dozens of others who also made no effort to stand as the hex raced past them. In the first moments of the incident, right after the top of the plane was sliced open, Paul Heck looked over to his wife, Floy. She was motionless, frozen in place and unable to process what was happening. He screamed for her to follow him. They unbuckled, clasped hands, and he led her out of the plane as the smoke began to billow. Floy later realized she possibly could have saved those sitting in a stupor just by yelling for them to join her, but she too was in a daze, with no thoughts of escape as she blindly followed her husband. Years later, Floy Heck was interviewed by the Orange County Register. She told the reporter she remembered looking back just before leaping out of a gash in the wall. She saw her friend still in the seat next to where they had been sitting with her hands folded in her lap, her eyes glassed over. Her friend did not survive the fire. In any perilous event, like a sinking ship or a towering inferno, a shooting rampage or a tornado, there is a chance you will become so overwhelmed by the perilous overflow of ambiguous information that you will do nothing at all. You will float away and leave a senseless statue in your place. You may even lie down. If no one comes to your aid, you will die. John Leach, a psychologist at the University of Lancaster, also studies freezing under stress. He says about 75% of people find it impossible to reason during a catastrophic event or impending doom. On the edges, the 15 or so percent on either side of the bell curve react either with unimpaired, heightened awareness or blubbering, confused panic. According to Johnson and Leach, the sort of people who survive are the sort of people who prepare for the worst and practice ahead of time. They've done the research, or built the shelter, or run the drills. They look for the exits and imagine what they will do. They were in a fire as a child or survived a typhoon. These people don't deliberate during calamity because they've already done the deliberation the other people around them are just now going through. Normalcy bias is stalling during a crisis and pretending everything will continue to be as fine and predictable as it was before. Those who defeat it act when others don't. They move when others are considering whether or not they should. As Johnson points out, the brain must go through a procedure before the body acts cognition, perception, comprehension, decision, implementation, and then movement. There's no way to overclock this but you can practice until these steps individually are no longer complex, and thus no longer take up valuable brain computation cycles. Johnson likens it to playing an instrument. If you've never played a C chord on a guitar, you have to think your way through it and awkwardly press down on the strings until you make a clumsy twang. With a few minutes of practice, you can strum without as much deliberation and create a more pleasant sound. To be clear, Normalcy bias isn't freezing at the first signs of danger like a rabbit who confronts a snake, which is a real behavior humans can succumb to. To suddenly stop moving and hope for the best is called fear bradycardia, and it is an automatic and involuntarily instinct. This is sometimes referred to as tonic immobility. Animals like gazelles will become motionless if they sense a predator is nearby in the hopes of tricking its motion tracking abilities by blending into the background. Some animals go so far as to feign death in what is called thanatoses. In 2005, 
researchers at the University of Rio de Janeiro were able to induce fear bradycardia in humans just by showing subjects photos of injured people. The participants' heart rates plummeted and their muscles stiffened immediately. To be sure, this sort of behavior happens in a disaster, but we are talking about something different with normalcy bias. Much of your behavior is an attempt to lower anxiety. You know you aren't in any danger when everything is safe and expected. Normalcy bias is self-soothing through believing everything is just fine. If you can still engage in your normal habits, still see the world as if nothing bad is happening, then your anxiety stays put. Normalcy bias is a state of mind out of which you are attempting to make everything okay by believing it still is. Normalcy bias is refusing to believe terrible events will include you even though you have every reason to think otherwise. The first thing you are likely to feel in the event of a disaster is the supreme need to feel safe and secure. When it becomes clear this is impossible, you drift into a daydream where it is. Survivors of 9-11 say they remember gathering belongings before leaving offices and cubicles. They put on coats and called loved ones. They shut down their computers and had conversations. Even in their descent, most moved at a leisurely pace no screaming or running. There was no need for anyone to say remain calm everyone, because they weren't freaking out. They were begging the world to return to normal by engaging in acts of normalcy. To reduce the anxiety of impending doom, you first cling to what you know. You then mine others for information. You strike up dialogues with co-workers, friends, and family. You become glued to the television and the radio. You gather with others to trade what you know so far. Some believe this is what happened as the Bridge Creek Moore F5 tornado approached, which caused some people not to seek shelter. All the tools of pattern recognition, all the routines you've become accustomed to are rendered useless in a horrific event. The emergency situation is too novel and ambiguous. You have a tendency to freeze not because panic has overwhelmed you but because normalcy has disappeared. Ripley calls this moment when you freeze reflexive incredulity. As your brain attempts to disseminate the data, your deepest desire is for everyone around you to assure you the bad thing isn't real. You wait for this to happen past the point when it becomes obvious it will not. The holding pattern of normalcy bias continues until the ship lurches or the building shifts. You may remain placid until the tornado throws a car through your house or the hurricane snaps the power lines. If everyone else is milling around waiting for information, you will too. Those who are deeply concerned with evacuation procedures first responders, architects, stadium personnel, the travel industry are aware of normalcy bias, and write about it in manuals and trade journals. In a 1985 paper published in the International Journal of Mass Emergencies and Disasters, sociologists Shunji Mikami and Kenichi Ikeda at the University of Tokyo identified the steps you are likely to go through in a disaster. They said you have a tendency to first interpret the situation within the context of what you are familiar with and to greatly underestimate the severity. This is the moment, when seconds count, that normalcy bias costs lives. A predictable order of behaviors, they said, will then unfold. You will seek information from those you trust first and then move on to those nearby. Next, you'll try to contact your family if possible, and then you'll begin to prepare to evacuate or seek shelter. Finally, after all of this, you'll move. 
Mikami and Aikida say you are more likely to dawdle if you fail to understand the seriousness of the situation and have never been exposed to advice about what to do or been in a similar circumstance. Even worse, you stall longer if you fall back on the old compare and contrast tendencies where you try to convince yourself the encroaching peril is not much different than what you are used to normalcy bias. They use a 1982 flood in Nagasaki as an example. Light flooding occurred there every year, and the residents assumed the heavy rainfall was part of a familiar routine. Soon, though, they realized the waters were getting higher and doing so faster than in years past. At 4.55 p.m., the government issued a flood warning. Still, some waited to see just how peculiar the flooding would be, how out of the ordinary. Only 13% of residents had evacuated by 9 p.m. In the end, 265 were killed. When Hurricane Katrina bore down on my home in Mississippi, I remember going to the grocery store for food, water, and supplies and being shocked by the number of people who had only a few loaves of bread and couple of bottles of soda in their carts. I remember their frustration as they waited in line behind me with all my bottled water and canned goods. I told them, sorry, but you can never be too prepared. Their response? I don't think it's going to be a big deal. I often wonder what those people did for the two weeks we were without electricity and the roads were impassable. Normalcy bias is a proclivity you can't be rid of. Everyday life seems prosaic and mundane because you are wired to see it as such. If you weren't, you would never be able to handle the information overload. Think of moving into a new apartment or home, or buying a new car or cell phone. At first, you notice everything and spend hours adjusting settings or arranging furniture. After a while, you get used to the normalcy and let things go. You may even forget certain aspects of your new home until a visitor points them out to you and you rediscover them. You acclimate to your surroundings so you can notice when things go awry, otherwise life would be all noise and no signal. Sometimes though, this habit of creating background static and then ignoring it gets in the way. Sometimes you see static when you shouldn't and yearn for normalcy when it cannot be found. Hurricanes and floods, for example, can be too big, slow, and abstract to startle you into action. You truly can't see them coming. The solution, according to Mikami, Aikida, and other experts, is repetition on the part of those who can help, those who can see the danger better than you. If enough warnings are given and enough instructions are broadcast, then those things become the new normal, and you will spring into action. Normalcy bias can be scaled up to larger events as well. Global climate change, peak oil, obesity epidemics, and stock market crashes are good examples of larger, more complex events in which people fail to act because it is difficult to imagine just how abnormal life could become if the predictions are true. Regular media overhyping and panic building over issues like Y2K, swine flu, SARS, and the like help fuel normalcy bias on a global scale. Pundits on both sides of politics warn of crises that can be averted only by voting one way or the other. With so much crying wolf, it can be difficult to determine in the frenzied information landscape when to be alarmed, when it really is not a drill. The first instinct is to gauge how out of the norm the situation truly is and act only when the problem crosses a threshold past which it becomes impossible to ignore. Of course, this is often after it is too late to act. 
8. Introspection The Misconception You know why you like the things you like and feel the way you feel. The truth, the origin of certain emotional states is unavailable to you, and when pressed to explain them, you will just make something up. Imagine a painting the world considers beautiful, something like Starry Night by Van Gogh. Now imagine you have to write an essay on why it is popular. Go ahead, think of a reasonable explanation. No, don't keep reading. Give it a shot. Explain why Van Gogh's work is great. Is there a certain song you love, or a photograph? Perhaps there is a movie you keep returning to over the years, or a book. Go ahead and imagine one of those favorite things. Now, in one sentence, try to explain why you like it. Chances are, you will find it difficult to put into words, but if pressed you will probably be able to come up with something. The problem is, according to research, your explanation is probably going to be total bullshit. Tim Wilson at the University of Virginia demonstrated this in 1990 with the poster test. He brought a group of students into a room and showed them a series of posters. The students were told they could take any one they wanted as a gift and keep it. He then brought in another group and told them the same thing, but this time they had to explain why they wanted the poster they each picked. Wilson then waited six months and asked the two groups what they thought of their choices. The first group, the ones who just got to grab a poster and leave, all loved their choice. The second group, the ones who had to write out why they were choosing one over the others, hated theirs. The first group, the grab-and-go people, usually picked a nice, fancy painting. The second group, the ones who had to explain their choice, usually picked an inspirational poster with a cat clinging to a rope. According to Wilson, when you are faced with a decision in which you are forced to think about your rationale, you start to turn the volume in your emotional brain down and the volume in your logical brain up. You start creating a mental list of pros and cons that would never have been conjured up if you had gone with your gut. As Wilson noted in his research, forming preferences is akin to riding a bicycle, we can do it easily but cannot easily explain how. Before Wilson's work, the general consensus was to see careful deliberation as good, but he showed how the act of introspection can sometimes lead you to make decisions that look good on virtual paper but leave you emotionally lacking. Wilson knew previous research at Kent State had shown that ruminations about your own depression tend to make you more depressed, but distraction leads to an improved mood. Sometimes, Introspection is simply counterproductive. Research into introspection calls into question the entire industry of critical analysis of art video games, music, film, poetry, literature all of it. It also makes things like focus groups and market analysis seem less about the intrinsic quality of the things being judged and more about what the people doing the judging find to be plausible explanations of their own feelings. When you ask people why they do or do not like things, they must then translate something from a deep, emotional, primal part of their psyche into the language of the higher, logical, rational world of words and sentences and paragraphs. The problem here is those deeper recesses of the mind are perhaps inaccessible and unconscious. The things that are available to consciousness might not have much to do with your preferences. Later, 
when you attempt to justify your decisions or emotional attachments, you start worrying about what your explanation says about you as a person, further tainting the validity of your inner narrative. In the poster test, most people truly preferred the nice painting to the inspirational cat, but they couldn't conjure up a rational explanation of why, at least not in a way that would make logical sense on paper. On the other hand, you can write all sorts of bullshit about a motivational poster. It has a stated and tangible purpose. Wilson conducted another experiment in which people were shown two small photos of two different people and were asked which one was more attractive. They were then handed what they were told was a larger version of the photo they'd picked, but it was actually a picture of a completely different person. They were then asked why they'd chosen it. Each time, the person dutifully spun a yarn explaining his or her choice. The person had never seen the photo before, but that didn't make the task of explaining why he or she had preferred it in an imaginary past any more difficult. Another of Wilson's experiments had subjects rate the quality of jam. He placed before them five varieties of jam which had previously been ranked by consumer reports as the first, 11th, 24th, 32nd, and 44th best jams on the market. One group tasted and ranked how good they thought the jams were. The other group had to write out what they did and did not like about each one as they tasted it. As with the posters, the people who didn't have to explain themselves gravitated toward the same ones consumer reports said were best. The people forced to introspect rated the jams inconsistently and had varying preferences based on their explanations. Taste is difficult to quantify and put into words, so the explainers focused on other aspects like texture or color or viscosity. None of which in the end made much difference to the non-explainers. Believing you understand your motivations and desires, your likes and dislikes, is called the introspection illusion. You believe you know yourself and why you are the way you are. You believe this knowledge tells you how you will act in all future situations. Research shows otherwise. Time after time, experiments show introspection is not the act of tapping into your innermost mental constructs but is instead a fabrication. You look at what you did, or how you felt, and you make up some sort of explanation that you can reasonably believe. If you have to tell others, you make up an explanation they can believe too. When it comes to explaining why you like the things you like, you are not so smart, and the very act of having to explain yourself can change your attitudes. In this new era of Twitter and Facebook and blogs, just about everyone is broadcasting his or her love or hate of art. Just look at all the vitriol and praise being lobbed back and forth over Avatar or Black Swan. When Titanic earned its Oscars, some people were saying it might just be the greatest film ever made. Now it's considered good but schmaltzy, a well-made film but decidedly melodramatic. What will people think in a hundred years? It would be wise to remember that many of the works we now consider classics were in their time critically panned. For instance, this is how one reviewer described Moby Dick in 1851, this is an ill-compounded mixture of romance and matter-of-fact. The idea of a connected and collected story has obviously visited and abandoned its writer again and again in the course of composition. The style of his tale is in places disfigured by mad, rather than bad, English, and its catastrophe is hastily, weakly, and obscurely managed. We have little more to say in reprobation or in recommendation of this absurd book. 
Mr. Melville has to thank himself only if his horrors and his heroics are flung aside by the general reader, as so much trash belonging to the worst school of bedlam literature since he seems not so much unable to learn as disdainful of learning the craft of an artist. Henry F. Chorley, in London Athenaeum this book is now considered one of a handful of great American novels and is held up as an example of the best pieces of literature ever written. Chances are, though, no one can truly explain why. 9. The Availability Heuristic The Misconception With the advent of mass media, you understand how the world works based on statistics and facts culled from many examples. The truth, you are far more likely to believe something is commonplace if you can find just one example of it, and you are far less likely to believe in something you've never seen or heard of before. Do more words begin with R or have R as the third letter? Think about it for a second rib, rat, revolver, reality, relinquish. If you are like most people, you think there are more that begin with R but you're wrong. More words in the English language have the letter in the third position than in the first car, bar, farce, market, dart. It is much easier to believe the first option because it takes more concentration to think of words with R in the third position. Try it. If someone you know gets sick from taking a flu shot, you will be less likely to get one even if it is statistically safe. In fact, if you see a story on the news about someone dying from the flu shot, that one isolated case could be enough to keep you away from the vaccine forever. On the other hand, if you hear a news story about how eating sausage leads to anal cancer, you will be skeptical, because it has never happened to anyone you know, and sausage, after all, is delicious. The tendency to react more rapidly and to a greater degree when considering information you are familiar with is called the availability heuristic. The human mind is generated by a brain that was formed under far different circumstances than the modern world offers up on a daily basis. Over the last few million years, much of our time was spent with fewer than 150 people, and what we knew about the world was based on examples from our daily lives. Mass media, statistical data, scientific findings these things are not digested as easily as something you've seen with your own eyes. The old adage I'll believe it when I see it is the availability heuristic at work. Politicians use this all the time. Whenever you hear a story that begins with I met a mother of two in Michigan who lost her job because of a lack of funding for or something similar, the politician hopes the anecdote will sway your opinion. He or she is betting that the availability heuristic will influence you to assume that this one example is indicative of a much larger group of people. It's simply easier to believe something if you are presented with examples than it is to accept something presented in numbers or abstract facts. School shootings were considered to be a dangerous new phenomenon after Columbine. That event fundamentally changed the way kids are treated in American schools, and hundreds of books, seminars, and films have been produced in an attempt to understand the sudden epidemic. The truth, however, was that there hadn't been an increase in school shootings. According to research by Barry Glasner, author of The Culture of Fear, during the time when Columbine and other school shootings got major media attention, violence in schools was down over 30%. Kids were more likely to get shot in school before Columbine, but the media during that time hadn't given you many examples. A typical skookit is three times more likely to get hit by lightning than to be shot by a classmate, yet schools continue to guard against it as if it could happen at any second. 
Amos T. Verxi and Daniel Kahneman pinpointed the availability heuristic in their 1973 research. Their subjects had to listen to a tape recording of names being said aloud that included 19 famous men and 20 that the subjects had never heard before. They repeated the study with names of women as well. After they heard the names, subjects had to either recall as many names as they could or identify them from a word bank. About 66% of the people recalled famous people more often than the unfamiliar names, and 80% said the lists contained more famous names than non-famous. The word test about how often R is in the third position was Tversky and Kahneman's idea too. In both studies they showed the more available a bit of information is, the faster you process it. The faster you process it, the more you believe it and the less likely you become to consider other bits of info. When you buy a lottery ticket, you imagine yourself winning like those people on television who get suddenly famous when their numbers are chosen, because people who don't win don't get interviewed. You are far more likely to die in a car crash on the way to buy the ticket than you are to win, but this information isn't as available. You don't think in statistics, you think in examples, in stories. When it comes to buying lottery tickets, fearing the West Nile virus, looking for child molesters, and so on, you use the availability heuristic first and the facts second. You decide the likelihood of a future event on how easily you can imagine it, and if you've been bombarded by reports or have filled your head with fears, those images will overshadow new information that might contradict your beliefs. 10. The bystander effect the misconception, when someone is hurt, people rush to their aid. The truth, the more people who witness a person in distress, the less likely it is that any one person will help. If your car were to break down and your cell phone had no service, where do you think you would have a better chance of getting help a country road or a busy street? To be sure, more people will see you on a busy street. On the country road, you might have to wait a long time before someone comes by. So which one? Studies show you have a better chance on the country road. Why? Have you ever seen someone broken down on the side of the road and thought, I could help them, but I'm sure someone will be along? Everyone thinks that. And no one stops. This is called the bystander effect. In 1968, Eleanor Bradley fell and broke her leg in a busy department store. For 40 minutes, people just stepped over and around her until one man finally stopped to see what was wrong. In 2000, a group of young men attacked 60 women at a Central Park parade in New York City. Thousands of people looked on. No one used a cell phone to call police. The culprit in both cases was the bystander effect. In a crowd, your inclination to rush to someone's aid fades, as if diluted by the potential of the group. Everyone thinks someone is going to eventually do something, but with everyone waiting together, no one does. The most famous illustration of this phenomenon is the story of Kitty Genovese. According to a newspaper article in 1964, she was stabbed by an attacker at 3 a.m. in a parking lot in front of her New York City apartment complex. The attacker ran away when she screamed for help, but not one of the 38 witnesses came to her rescue. The story goes on to say the attacker returned over and over for 30 minutes while people watched on from surrounding apartment windows as he stabbed her. The story has since been thoroughly debunked, a case of sensational reporting, 
but at the time it was written it led to intense interest in the phenomenon from psychologists. Social psychologists started studying the bystander effect soon after the story went viral, and they determined that the more people present when a person needs emergency help, the less likely it is any one of them will lend a hand. In 1970, psychologists Bib Lottain and John Darley created an experiment in which they would drop pencils or coins. Sometimes they would be in a group, sometimes with one other person. They did this 6,000 times. The results? They got help 20% of the time in a group, 40% of the time with one other person. They decided to up the stakes, and in their next experiment they had someone fill out a questionnaire. After a few minutes, smoke would start to fill the room, billowing in from a wall vent. They ran two versions of the experiment. In one, the person was alone, in the other, two other people were also filling out the questionnaire. When alone, people took about five seconds to get up and freak out. Within groups people took an average of 20 seconds to notice. When alone, the subject would go inspect the smoke and then leave the room to tell the experimenter he or she thought something was wrong. When in a group, people just sat there looking at one another until the smoke was so thick they couldn't see the questionnaire. Only three people in eight runs of the group experiment left the room, and they took an average of six minutes to get up. The findings suggest the fear of embarrassment plays into group dynamics. You see the smoke, but you don't want to look like a fool, so you glance over at the other person to see what they are doing. The other person is thinking the same thing. Neither of you react, so neither of you becomes alarmed. The third person sees two people acting like everything is okay, so that third person is even less likely to freak out. Everyone is influencing every other person's perception of reality thanks to another behavior called the illusion of transparency. You tend to think other people can tell what you are thinking and feeling just by looking at you. You think the other people can tell you are really worried about the smoke, but they can't. They think the same thing. No one freaks out. This leads to pluralistic ignorance a situation where everyone is thinking the same thing but believes he or she is the only person who thinks it. After the smoke-filled room experiment, all the participants reported they were freaking out on the inside, but since no one else seemed alarmed, they assumed it must just be their own anxiety. The researchers decided to up the ante once more. This time, they had people fill out a questionnaire while the experimenter, a woman, shouted in the other room about how she had injured her leg. When alone, 70% of people left the room to check on her. When in a group, 40% checked. If you were to walk along a bridge and see someone in the water screaming for help, you would feel a much greater urge to leap in and pull them to safety than you would if you were part of a crowd. When it's just you, all the responsibility to help is yours. The bystander effect gets stronger when you think the person who needs help is being harmed by someone that person knows. Lance Shotland and Margaret Straw showed in a 1978 experiment when people saw two actors, a man and a woman, pretending to physically fight, they often wouldn't intervene if the woman shouted, I don't know why I ever married you. People helped 65% of the time if she instead shouted, I don't know you. Many other studies have shown it takes only one person to help for others to join in. Whether it is to donate blood, assist someone in changing a tire, drop money into a performer's coffers, 
or stop a fight people rush to help once they see another person leading by example. One final, awesome example is the Good Samaritan experiment. Darley and Batson in 1973 got a group of Princeton Theological Seminary students together and told them to prepare a speech on the parable of the Good Samaritan from the Bible. The point of the parable is to stop and help people in need. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus tells his disciples about a traveler who is beaten and robbed then left to die along a road. A priest and another man walk past him, but a Samaritan stops to help even though the man is Jewish and Samaritans weren't in the habit of helping out Jews. After filling out some questionnaires, with the story fresh in their minds, some groups were told they were late to give the speech in a nearby building. In other groups the subjects were told they had plenty of time. Along their path to the other building an actor was slumped over and groaning, pretending to be sick and in need of help. Of the seminary students who had plenty of time, about 60% stopped and helped. The ones in a rush, 10% helped, and some even stepped over the actor on their way. So the takeaway here is to remember you are not so smart when it comes to helping people. In a crowded room, or a public street, you can expect people to freeze up and look around at one another. Knowing that, you should always be the first person to break away from the pack and offer help or attempt escape because you can be certain no one else will. 11. The Dunning-Kruger Effect The Misconception you can predict how well you would perform in any situation. The truth, you are generally pretty bad at estimating your competence and the difficulty of complex tasks. Imagine you are very good at a particular game. Pick anything chess, street fighter, poker doesn't matter. You play this game with friends all the time, and you always win. You get so good at it, you start to think you could win a tournament. You get online and find where the next regional tournament is, you pay the entrance fee and get your ass handed to you in the first round. It turns out, you are not so smart. All this time, you thought you were among the best of the best, but you were really just an amateur. This is the Dunning-Kruger effect, and it's a basic element of human nature. Think of all the YouTube stars over the last few years the people poorly twirling weapons and singing off-key. These performances are terrible, and not in a self-aware, ironic way. No, they are genuinely awful, and you wonder why someone would put themselves on a worldwide stage in such an embarrassing way. The thing is, they don't imagine the worldwide audience as being more sophisticated than the small audience of friends, family, and peers they usually stand before. As the philosopher Bertrand Russell once said, in the modern world the stupid are cocksure while the intelligent are full of doubt. The Dunning-Kruger effect is what makes America's Got Talent and American Idol possible. At the local karaoke bar you might be the best singer in the room. Up against the entire country? Not so much. Have you ever wondered why people with advanced degrees in climate science or biology don't get online and debate global warming or evolution? The less you know about a subject, the less you believe there is to know in total. Only once you have some experience do you start to recognize the breadth and depth you have yet to plunder. Of course, these are generalities. The economist Robin Hansen noted in 2008 that the Dunning-Kruger effect becomes a popular catchphrase near election time because it helps to paint opponents as being morons. The actual research that coined the term was performed by Justin Kruger and David Dunning in experiments at Cornell around 1999. 
They had students take humor and logic tests and then report how well they thought they had scored. Some people accurately predicted their own skill levels. Some knew they sucked at humor, and they were right. Others had a hunch they were better at telling jokes than most and had this belief confirmed. So sometimes people who are really good at something are well aware and can accurately predict their scores, but not always. Overall, the study showed you are not very good at estimating your own competence. More recent studies have attempted to refute the absolute black and white predictions of Dunning-Kruger that the unskilled are the least aware of it. A study by Burson, Larrick, and Clayman in 2006 showed that on easy tasks, where there is a positive bias, the best performers are also the most accurate in estimating their standing, but on difficult tasks, where there is a negative bias, the worst performers are the most accurate. So the Dunning-Kruger effect isn't always influencing you to think that you are awesome when you are actually mediocre. It breaks down like this, the more skilled you are, the more practice you've put in, the more experience you have, the better you can compare yourself to others. As you strive to improve, you begin to better understand where you need work. You start to see the complexity and nuance, you discover masters of your craft and compare yourself to them and see where you are lacking. On the other hand, the less skilled you are, the less practice you've put in, and the fewer experiences you have, the worse you are at comparing yourself to others on certain tasks. Your peers don't call you out because they know as little as you do, or they don't want to hurt your feelings. Your narrow advantage over novices leads you to think you are the shit. Charles Darwin said it best, ignorance more frequently begets confidence than does knowledge. Whether it's playing guitar or writing short stories or telling jokes or taking photos whatever amateurs are far more likely to think they are experts than actual experts are. Education is as much about learning what you don't know as it is about adding to what you do. The recent explosion of reality programming is a great example of the Dunning-Kruger effect. A whole industry of assholes is making a living off of making attractive yet untalented people believe they are actually genius auteurs. The bubble around reality stars is so thick, they may never escape it. At some point, the audience is in on the joke yet the people in the center of the tragedy are often completely unaware. As someone moves from novice to amateur to expert to master, the lines between each stage are difficult to recognize. The farther ahead you get, the longer it takes to progress. Yet the time it takes to go from novice to amateur feels rapid, and that's where the Dunning-Kruger effect strikes. You think the same amount of practice will move you from amateur to expert, but it won't. Everyone experiences the Dunning-Kruger effect from time to time. Being honest with yourself and recognizing all your faults and weaknesses is not a pleasant way to live. Feeling inadequate or incompetent is paralyzing you have to plow through those emotions to get out of bed. Seen along a spectrum, Dunning-Kruger is on the opposite end from depression with its crippling insecurity. Don't let the Dunning-Kruger effect cast its shadow over you. If you want to be great at something, you have to practice, and then you have to sample the work of people who have been doing it for their whole lives. Compare and contrast and eat some humble pie. 12. Apophenia The Misconception Some coincidences are so miraculous, they must have meaning. The Truth Coincidences are a routine part of life, even the seemingly miraculous ones. Any meaning applied to them comes from your mind. 
Screenwriters and novelists have discovered over the years a number of tropes that you tend to understand without much explanation, plots that satisfy the mind of every viewer or reader. Every story needs a strong protagonist with whom you can identify. If they are down on their luck or recently fell from grace, you see them as being approachable. If they are plucky and face great odds, again, you root for them without having to think about it. Early on, the protagonist will save someone without having to, and you start to like him or her. On the other side, you need a dastardly antagonist who harms someone for no reason, a person who ignores the rules and wants only to satisfy him or herself no matter the cost. The hero or heroine leaves his or her normal world and enters into a new life full of adventure. Just when it seems as though the protagonist will fail, he or she overcomes whatever has been in the way, in order to defeat the antagonist, sometimes even saving the world in the process. When the hero or heroine returns to home, he or she has been changed for the better. If the story is a tragedy, the protagonist ends up worse off than when the story began. Joseph Campbell made it his life's work to identify the common mythology in all humans, the stories you and everyone else know in your hearts. He called the outline above the hero's journey, and if you think about all the movies and books you've digested over the years, you will recognize almost every story is some variation of this tale. From folklore and theater, to modern cinema and video games, the hero's journey is a monomyth that plugs into your mind like a key into a lock. You love to watch highly paid actors play professional make-believe because you naturally think in images and stories, in narratives that unfold with characters who fill up your world. Math, science, and logic are much harder to contemplate than social situations. You are keenly aware of what role you play and who is on the stage, the story of your life. Just as with television and film, your memory tends to delete the boring parts and focus on the highlights the plot points. A certain kind of story, a mystery, plays on a type of narrative you often believe to be unfolding in the real world. In a mystery like The Da Vinci Code, or in a television series like Lost, where mysterious happenings are at the center of the plot, clues pop up that turn out to be connected in some strange way. You can't help but be intrigued by the patterns slowly coalescing. It drives you crazy. You find yourself compelled to keep turning the page or popping in the next disc to see what happens, to see how everything connects in the end. When you do this in the real world, it is called apophenia. Apophenia is an umbrella term that encompasses other phenomena, like the Texas sharpshooter fallacy and pareidolia. When you commit the Texas sharpshooter fallacy, you draw a circle around a series of random events and decide there is some meaning in the chaos that isn't really there. In Pareidolia, you see shapes like clouds or tree limbs as people or faces. Apophenia is refusing to believe in clutter and noise, in coincidence and chance. Apophenia most often appears in your life when you experience synchronicity. Small moments of synchronicity seem meaningful even when you know they can't be. If the date lines up in an interesting way, like say August 9th, 10, people talk about it. You can't just ignore it when something that should be random sorts itself out and becomes orderly. The clock reads 11.11 p.m. The next time you look, it reads 12.12 a.m. A brief sense of wonder turns your head askew, and then you move on. Synchronicity may show up in bigger ways as well. 
If you had a dream about a terrible flood and then turned on the morning news to see a flood had washed away the homes of hundreds of people in a distant place, it would be hard not to feel a chill run down your spine. Apophenia becomes an issue only when you decide coincidences and random sorting are more than the occasional signal rising from the noise. You might think deaths always come in threes when deaths are a constant part of life. You might find it amazing you share the same birthday as a dozen of your favorite celebrities, even though at any given time you share your birthday with about 16 million people. You might think the number 23 has some special power because it appears so often, when it doesn't appear any more than other numbers. Maybe you gamble all night, convinced you are seeing patterns in the cards or meaning in the wheels of the slot machine, yet the odds never change. You might see a person who wins the lottery three times in a row as having an extra helping of magical luck, but multiple lottery winners are actually rather common. When you connect the dots in your life in a way that tells a story, and then you interpret the story to have a special meaning, this is true apophenia. Say you are crossing the street when a homeless man grabs your shirt and pulls you out of traffic just as a motorcycle goes screaming by. You offer to give him money in appreciation for saving your life, and he refuses. The next day you read in the newspaper about the rise in homelessness in your city. A week later, you are searching online for a new job and see a position is open for a social worker in a city you've always wanted to live in. You might think, in the story of your life, these are all scenes leading up to your destiny as a champion of the downtrodden. You quit your job, move far away, and pay it forward. In this way, you can see apophenia isn't always a bad thing. You need a sense of meaning to get out of bed, to push forward against the grain. Just remember that meaning comes only from within. Your mind is pre-organized to notice order, even when the order is defined by your culture and not your synapses. The ancient Greeks and Babylonians believed numbers held special sacred meanings, and they attached numerical values to all aspects of humanity. The early Christians were fond of doing the same, especially, cf the number three and the trinity. In all religions and cultures, certain numbers are occasionally promoted above the others as having special significance. Once this happens, Apophenia causes people to notice them more than usual. In general, you prefer nice round numbers that correspond to the decimal system you've grown accustomed to using. When you have a choice, Apophenia influences you to sort items into groups that have meaning, like 10, 50, 100, and so on. As a society, currency notes are influenced by the same affection for pleasing numerals. The law of truly large numbers is something skeptics like to point out when apophenia strikes. The law says in a large sample of occurrences, many coincidences will emerge. On a planet with close to 7 billion people, there is a lot of opportunity for flukes. When people notice coincidences, they remember them and tell others. Sometimes they make their way into the news. When coincidences don't happen, no one cares. You end up with an echo chamber of tales where stories of coincidence have no competition. J. E. Littlewood, a mathematician at Cambridge University, wrote about the law of truly large numbers in his 1986 book, Littlewood's Miscellany. He said the average person is alert for about eight hours every day, and something happens to the average person about once a second. At this rate, you will experience one million events every 35 days. 
This means when you say the chances of something happening are one in a million, it also means about once a month. The monthly miracle is called Littlewood's Law. More often than not, apophenia is the result of the most dependable of all delusions the confirmation bias. You see what you want to see and ignore the rest. When what you want to see is something meaningful, you ignore all the things in the story of your life that are meaningless. Apophenia isn't just seeing order in chaos, it is believing you were destined to see it. It is believing miracles are so rare you should stand up and take notice when they occur, so you can decode their meaning. Mathematically speaking, though, there is a miracle happening every time you turn a page of this book. 13. Brand Loyalty The Misconception you prefer the things you own over the things you don't because you made rational choices when you bought them. The truth, you prefer the things you own because you rationalize your past choices to protect your sense of self. The internet changed the way people argue. Check any comment system, forum, or message board and you will find people going at it, debating why their chosen product is better than the other guys. Mac vs PC, PS3 vs Xbox 360, iPhone versus Android it goes on and on. Usually, these arguments are between men, because men will defend their ego no matter how slight the insult. These are also usually about geeky things that cost lots of money, because these battles take place on the internet, where tech-savvy people get rowdy, and the more expensive a purchase, the greater the loyalty to it. In the world of website comment sections, rabid fans are often called fanboys. It is internet slang for obsessive fandom. The term originated at a comic book convention in 1973 as the title of a fan-made magazine about Marvel comics, but in recent years it mutated into a soft insult that can be applied to anyone who goes out of his way to tell others about his love for stuff. When someone writes a dozen paragraphs online defending his favorite thing or slandering a competitor, he is quickly branded as a fanboy. Fanboyism isn't anything new. It's just a component of branding, which is something marketers and advertisers have known about since Quaker Oats created a friendly logo to go on their burlap sacks. There was, of course, no friendly Quaker family making the oats back in 1877. The company wanted people to associate the trustworthiness and honesty of Quakers with their product. It worked. This was one of the first attempts to create brand loyalty that nebulous emotional <coughs> have certain companies, which turns them into defenders and advocates for corporations who don't give a shit. In experiments at Baylor University where people were given Coke and Pepsi in unmarked cups and then hooked up to a brain scanner, the device clearly showed a certain number of them preferred Pepsi while tasting it. When those people were told they were drinking Pepsi, a fraction of them, the ones who had enjoyed coke all their lives, did something unexpected. The scanner showed their brains scrambling the pleasure signals, dampening them. They then told the experimenter afterward they had preferred coke in the taste tests. They lied, but in their subjective experience of the situation, they didn't. They really did feel like they preferred coke after it was all over, and they altered their memories to match their emotions. They had been branded somewhere in the past and were loyal to Coke. Even if they actually enjoyed Pepsi more, huge mental constructs prevented them from admitting it, even to themselves. Add this sort of loyalty to something expensive, or a hobby that demands a large investment of time and money, and you get a fanboy. 
Fanboys defend their favorite stuff and ridicule the competition, ignoring facts if they contradict their emotional connection. So what creates this emotional connection to stuff and the companies who make doodads? Choice. Those people who have no choice but to buy certain products, like toilet paper and gasoline, are called hostages by marketers and advertising agencies. Since they can't choose to own or not to own the product, they are far less likely to care if one version of toilet paper is better than another, or one gas station's fuel is made by Shell or Chevron. On the other hand, if the product is unnecessary, like an iPad, there is a great chance the customer will become a fanboy because he had to choose to spend a big chunk of money on it. It's the choosing of one thing over another that leads to narratives about why you did it, which usually tie into your self-image. Branding builds on this by giving you the option to create the person you think you are through choosing to align yourself with the mystique of certain products. Apple advertising, for instance, doesn't mention how good their computers are. Instead, they give you examples of the sort of people who purchase those computers. The idea is to encourage you to say, yeah, I'm not some stuffy, conservative nerd. I have taste and talent and took art classes in college. Are Apple computers better than Microsoft-based computers? Is one better than the other when looked at empirically, based on data and analysis and testing and objective comparisons? It doesn't matter, because those considerations come after a person has begun to see him or herself as the sort of person who would own one. If you see yourself as the kind of person who owns Apple computers, or who drives hybrids, or who smokes camels, you've been branded. And once a person is branded, that person will defend the brand by finding flaws in the alternative choice and pointing out benefits in his or her own. There are a number of cognitive biases that converge to create this behavior. The endowment effect pops up when you feel like the things you own are superior to the things you do not. Psychologists demonstrate this by asking a group of people how much they think a water bottle is worth. The group will agree to an amount around $5, and then someone in the group will be given the bottle for free. Then, after an hour, they ask the person how much they would be willing to sell the bottle back to the experimenter for. They usually ask for more money, like $8. Ownership adds special emotional value to things, even if those things were free. Another bias is the sunk cost fallacy. This is when you've spent money on something you don't want to own or don't want to do and can't get it back. For instance, you might pay too much for some takeout food that really sucks, but you eat it anyway, or you sit through a movie even after you realize it's terrible. Sunk cost can creep up on you too. Maybe you've been a subscriber to something for a long time and you realize it costs too much but you don't end your subscription because of all the money you've invested in the service so far. Is Blockbuster better than Netflix, or TiVo better than a generic DVR? If you've spent a lot of money on subscription fees, you might be unwilling to switch to alternatives because you feel invested in the brand. These biases feed into the big daddy of behaviors that are responsible for branding, fanboyism, and internet arguments about why the thing you own is better than the thing the other guy owns choice supportive bias. It works like this, you have several options for, say, a new television. Before you make a choice, you tend to compare and contrast all the different qualities of all the televisions on the market. Which is better, Samsung or Sony, Plasma or LCD, 
1080p or 1080i UG. So many variables. You eventually settle on one option, and after you make your decision you then look back and rationalize your actions by believing your television was the best of all the televisions you could have picked. In retail, this is a well understood phenomenon, and to prevent buyer's remorse they try not to overwhelm you with choice. Studies show that if you have only a handful of options at the point of purchase, you will be less likely to fret about your decision afterward. It's purely emotional, the moment you pick. People with brain damage to their emotional centers who have been rendered into Spock-like beings of pure logic find it impossible to decide things as simple as which brand of cereal to buy. They stand transfixed in the aisle, contemplating every element of their potential decision the calories, the shapes, the net weight everything. They can't pick because they have no emotional connection to anything. To combat post-decisional dissonance, the feeling you have committed to one option when the other option may have been better, you make yourself feel justified in what you selected to lower the anxiety brought on by questioning yourself. All of this forms a giant neurological cluster of associations, emotions, details of self-image, and biases around the things you own. So the next time you get ready to launch into 100 reasons why your cell phone or TV or car is better than someone else's, hesitate. Because you're not trying to change the other person's mind you're trying to prop up your own. 14. The argument from authority The misconception, you are more concerned with the validity of information than the person delivering it. The truth, the status and credentials of an individual greatly influence your perception of that individual's message. It would be hard not to feel somewhat intimidated while sitting across from a professor with all his or her degrees and certificates staring back at you. Behind that huge desk, surrounded by books and ancient statues, inside an aging, hallowed building, the professor seems to channel the might and weight of all of academia. When he or she opines on the history of civilization, you might be inclined to see the professor's point of view as more correct more thoroughly meditated upon than that of your cousin who collects ketchup packets. You would be right. Indeed, it is more likely that a professor of history will know why the Roman Empire fell and what can be learned from it than your condiment-obsessed relative will know these things. Those who devote their lives to the study or practice of a given idea are worth listening to when it comes to the areas of their expertise, but this doesn't mean all their opinions are golden. If the professor tells you how much he or she wishes the Spice Girls would reunite and play on campus, you would be committing logical fallacy if you decided you should maybe rethink your musical taste. When you see the opinions of some people as better than others on the merit of their status or training alone, you are arguing from authority. Should you listen to a highly trained scuba diver's advice before plunging into the depths of the ocean? Yes. Should you believe that person when the diver talks about seeing a mermaid making love to a dolphin? No. This book often brings up the consensus of scientists on certain behaviors as a way to prove how deluded you are. It is not a fallacy to trust the consensus of thousands of researchers on how to interpret the evidence provided by decades of studies. Science focuses on the facts, not the people who unearth them but that doesn't mean large groups of people can't agree on something that is totally wrong. Neurologist Walter Freeman won the 1949 Nobel Prize for Medicine in honor of his work lobotomizing mentally ill people by jabbing a spike behind their eyeballs. Some reports say he performed this technique around 2,500 times, often without anesthesia, 
he took a practice that had previously required drilling into the skull and turned it into an outpatient procedure. At first, he used an ice pick, but eventually he developed short, thin metal spears he drove through the back of the eye socket with a mallet. The technique made formerly unruly mental patients calmer, as you might imagine severe brain damage would. It became a popular way to treat patients in mental facilities, and Freeman drove a van he called the Lobotomobile around the country to teach the technique wherever he could. Somewhere close to 20,000 people were lobotomized in this way before science corrected itself. Freeman was criticized by many in his heyday, but for two decades his work continued, and it earned him the highest accolade possible. Even the sister of President John F. Kennedy was lobotomized. Today, the ice pick lobotomy is condemned by medicine as a barbaric and naive approach to dealing with mental illness. The rise and fall of the ice pick lobotomy had a lot to do with the argument from authority. Freeman and others had jumped the gun on the scientific evidence. Without all the facts in place, they used psychosurgery because it gave them the results they were looking for. Hospitals welcomed Dr. Freeman, his authority went unquestioned as, one after another, he pulled aside patients who needed help and turned them into zombies. Just two decades later, the science caught up to Freeman and revealed that what he was doing was unnecessary from a medical standpoint and horrific from a moral one. His license to practice was revoked, and he died an outcast. The same community who lauded him in one era rejected him in another. This sort of turnover in science is common, although it happens less today than in years past when so little was understood about these sorts of influences. Like most modern professions, science guards against the argument from authority by working against it, questioning every nugget of new info so as to avoid what happened in neurology throughout the 1940s. Still, the argument does play a role. Whether in churches or legislatures, botany or business, those who are held in high regard can cause a lot of damage when no one is willing to question their authority. You naturally look to those in power as having something special you lack, a spark of something you would like to see inside yourself. This is why people sometimes subscribe to the beliefs of celebrities who endorse exotic religions or denounce sound medicines. If you feel more inclined to believe something is true because it comes from a person with prestige, you are letting the argument from authority spin your head. If something is controversial, it usually means there are many experts who disagree. You would be wise to come to your own conclusions based on the evidence, not the people delivering it. On the other hand, if there is widespread consensus, you can relax your skepticism. Just don't relax it completely. If a celebrity basketball player tells you to buy a particular brand of batteries, Ask yourself if the basketball player seems like an expert on electrochemical energy storage units before you take the player's word. 15. The argument from ignorance the misconception. When you can't explain something, you focus on what you can prove. The truth, when you are unsure of something, you are more likely to accept strange explanations. There is a pleasant sense of wonder that can fill your heart when you take in the natural world and realize how much you don't know. How does the mighty oak spring from a lowly acorn? How does a river carve out a vast canyon? How could the universe begin from a microscopic dot and explode into all the matter and energy you see today? How can you be thinking about calling someone right as they dial your number and tell you they were thinking of you too? 
It is easy to succumb to mystical thinking when you compare what you know for sure to the vast expanse of things yet unsolved. If you aren't up to date on the latest scientific research, you may put concepts like tiny seeds becoming giant plants in the realm of the unknown. You've probably met people like this, who see things like magnets and Stonehenge as unsolvable mysteries. People in awe of such things see them as magical and miraculous, or perhaps believe the explanation is beyond modern human comprehension. The emotions roused when you are humbled by the splendor of nature and the ingenuity of ancient people are nice. It feels good to ponder the mysterious. The only problem with these emotions is science has explained much of the world both outside and inside your head. This is a bummer for fans of unsolved mysteries or Ripley's Believe It or Not or In Search Of. More recently, Ghost Hunters and the Unexplained have earned big ratings by showcasing the spooky stuff science has ruined. Outside of science, mystical New Age props like crystals and dowsing rods play on your tendency toward pattern recognition. You look for cause and effect, but when the cause is unclear you commit a logical fallacy by thinking all the possible causes are equal. That strange feeling you get when you walk into an old house could it be a haunting? Are those strange creaks and bumps attempts at communication from the spirit realm? The strange lights in the sky, are they aliens preparing to probe unsuspecting farm families? Did those tracks in the forest come from a friendly, misunderstood Sasquatch? Most of what gets filed under the realm of the paranormal is the result of people committing the argument from ignorance fallacy, or argumentum ad ignorantium if you prefer the Latin logic terminology. Put simply, this is when you decide something is true or false because you can't find evidence to the contrary. You don't know what the truth is, so you assume any explanation is as good as another. Maybe those lights were alien spacecraft, maybe not. You don't know, so you think the likelihood they were intergalactic visitors is roughly the same as those lights being from a helicopter far away. You can't disprove something you don't know anything about and the argument from ignorance fallacy can make you feel as though something is possible because you can't prove otherwise. You know this book is in your hands right now, but when you leave the room you can't be sure it does not come to life and eat your dust bunnies for sustenance. Despite this, you don't feel inclined to lock away this book at night just in case it builds up enough strength to devour your face. You not being able to disprove this book secretly hungers for flesh does not improve the odds it does. The same holds true for leprechauns and unicorns, chupacabra and the Loch Ness Monster. These things aren't more likely just because you can't prove they don't exist. Lack of proof neither confirms nor denies a proposition. Is there life on other planets? We can't say yes or no just because it hasn't been discovered yet. No matter how you feel about the question, you would be incorrect to assume the lack of evidence proves your assumption. At the same time, you can't just live your life so open-minded you never accept proof. Was Michael Jackson a time traveler sent from the future to teach the world to moonwalk? You can't exactly prove this is false, but there is enough evidence to the contrary to assume he was a singer born in 1958, not a time lord from 3022. Some people think the Holocaust didn't happen, or human beings never walked on the moon, but there is plenty of evidence for both. People who refuse to believe such things claim they need more evidence before they can change their minds, but no amount of evidence will satisfy them. Any shred of doubt allows them to argue from ignorance. 
16 The straw man fallacy The misconception, when you argue, you try to stick to the facts. The truth, in any argument, anger will tempt you to reframe your opponent's position. When you are losing an argument, you often use a variety of deceptive techniques to bolster your opinion. You aren't trying to be sneaky, but the human mind tends to follow predictable patterns when you get angry with other people and do battle with words. One of the most reliable and sturdy logical fallacies is the straw man, and even though its probability of appearing is high, you often don't notice when you are using it or being beat over the head with it. It works like this, when you get into an argument about either something personal or something more public and abstract, you sometimes resort to constructing a character who you find easier to refute, argue, and disagree with, or you create a position the other person isn't even suggesting or defending. This is a straw man. It happens so often, professional debaters and science advocates are trained to look for the straw man fallacy both in themselves and opponents when asserting their opinions or shooting down the claims of others. The straw man fallacy takes the facts and assertions of your opponent and replaces them with an artificial argument you feel more comfortable dealing with. The straw man fallacy follows a familiar pattern. You first build the straw man, then you attack it then you point out how easy it was to defeat it, and then you come to a conclusion. For instance, say you are arguing about whether or not people should be allowed to own pet chickens. You think chickens are hideous creatures, thanks to an unfortunate incident in childhood when you were attacked by a bloodthirsty hen at a petting zoo, and since then you have made it your life's mission to keep poultry away from children. Your opponent wants the city ordinances to be changed so he can breed fancy varieties of chickens who look like sea anemones and sell them to pet stores. You say, if we allow people to breed chickens in their backyards, soon they'll be in the streets and on the subway. Eventually, people will be taking their chickens to work with them and including them in Christmas cards with the rest of the family. In a world like that, what will happen to the poultry industry? No one will want to eat something that could be their pet. I don't think I want to live in a world like that, would you? So, no, we shouldn't allow this ordinance to pass. In creating a fantasy scenario where the world goes mad if the other person's argument were to win, you have constructed a straw man. It is easy to see the downsides of and hard to defend, but it also isn't what the other person was suggesting. Now the other person has to clarify his or her argument by assuring everyone he or she has no desire to see restaurant chains close because of this proposal. The other person now must argue against the feathery doomsday you've invented instead of just pointing out the reasonable ways people could be allowed to raise a few domesticated fowl. Within any debate over a controversial topic, you will see straw men tossed out by both sides. Sometimes people morph the straw man into a warning about a slippery slope where allowing one side to win would put humanity on a course of destruction. Anytime someone begins an attack with so you're saying we should all just or everyone knows, you can bet a straw man is coming. When you start or someone else starts to imagine a future hellscape thanks to the ideas of the opposition becoming reality, there is a straw man in the room. Straw men can also be born out of ignorance. If someone says, scientists tell us we all come from monkeys, and that's why I homeschool, this person is using a straw man, because science doesn't say we all come from monkeys. Pay attention the next time you disagree with someone, and see if you start or the other person starts to construct a man out of straw.
Keep in mind whoever does it is using a logical fallacy, and even if that person succeeds, he or she didn't really win. 17. The ad hominem fallacy The misconception, if you can't trust someone, you should ignore that person's claims. The truth, what someone says and why they say it should be judged separately. Sometimes an argument can get so heated you start calling the other person names. You attack the other person instead of the position that person has taken. It is easier to disagree with someone you see as nasty or ignorant. Calling someone a bigot, or an idiot, or an asshole feels good, but it does not prove you right or that person wrong. This makes sense, but you don't always notice when you are doing it. When you assume someone is incorrect based on who that person is or what group he or she belongs to, you have committed the ad hominem fallacy. Ad hominem is Latin for to the person, which is where you sometimes take the argument when things get out of hand. Imagine you are part of jury in the case of a man who is accused of stealing a car. The prosecutor might bring up the past of the defendant to show he's committed crimes before, or have people from his past claim he is a liar. Once the seed is planted this guy is a liar and a thief it might sway your opinion of the argument at hand. No matter what the man says, somewhere in your head you will doubt it because you don't trust liars. If the guy on trial told you the sky was blue and bread was edible, you would have no problem believing it. The fallacy disappears. Only his argument about something you are still unsure of is affected. If he tells you he didn't steal the car, the lawyer's ad hominem attack may cause you to ignore the evidence and commit a logical fallacy. What if a prominent scientist is caught falsifying his research? Do you now see everything that scientist has ever discovered as bunk? What if all the research leading up to the unethical act was properly peer-reviewed and scrutinized? The tendency to label the scientist as a shifty and unprincipled person is hard to shake. The logical misstep is to assume all the scientist's work is false because of who he or she is, the label you have placed on this person. You might do the same with a journalist who gets too many facts wrong. You think if this journalist made up one story, then all the writer's other stories are probably made up too. You would be right to feel skeptical, but jumping to a conclusion based on how you feel about the journalist as an individual would be a mistake. Perhaps someone criticizes your driving and you respond with you have no room to talk. You are the worst driver in the world. There it is again. You are dismissing the other person's argument by attacking the person instead of the claim. Just calling someone a name is not a fallacy. You must discount the person's position based on your impression of his or her character before you get into trouble. If you refuse to listen to the financial advice of a drug addict because the addict wastes money on pills, now you're cooking with fallacies. If a smoker tells you he or she thinks it should be legal to smoke in restaurants, you can't wave your hand in the air and dismiss that opinion just because the person offering it has a personal stake in the matter. Maybe the smoker has a point, maybe not, but the fact that he or she is a smoker shouldn't confuse your thinking. A political attack ad might say something like don't vote for Susan Smith because she practiced voodoo in college. Just because someone is a practicing voodoo priestess doesn't mean she can't balance a budget. Political opponents also hope you will commit the ad hominem fallacy when they point out who their opponent hangs out with or who they have done business with in the past. Guilt by association is often the ad hominem fallacy at work. If someone hangs out with crooks or crazies, 
maybe that person is a criminal or a lunatic. A politician's policies and the people he or she barbecues with are separate issues. However, this is not to say that if you see a man in a banana suit playing a flute and carrying a sign that reads the end is near. You should race home to kiss your family goodbye. Avoiding the ad hominem fallacy does not mean you have to trust everything you hear equally. Still, you can't be logically certain the banana man is wrong. Maybe the end is near, but you should make up your mind based on the evidence he can bring to the table. If his opinion is based on the chatter of pigeons, you can probably ignore it. The ad hominem fallacy can also work in reverse. You might assume someone is trustworthy because they speak well, or have a respectable job. It is hard to believe an astronaut would put on a diaper and drive across the country to kill the wife of her lover, but it did happen once. The inverse ad hominem fallacy would steer you into delusion if you were on the jury in the astronaut's trial and refused to believe the evidence because of your respect for space explorers. You tend to see people as characters and look for consistency in their behavior. This is usually a good thing, as it helps you sort out whom you can trust. Wondering whether or not someone can be trusted and Wondering whether or not someone is telling the truth are two different things. Judging character has been such a useful tool for so long in the evolutionary history of human beings it can overshadow your logic. You might be a great judge of character, but you need to be a great judge of evidence to avoid delusion. 18 The just world fallacy The misconception, people who are losing at the game of life must have done something to deserve it. The truth, the beneficiaries of good fortune often do nothing to earn it, and bad people often get away with their actions without consequences. A woman goes out to a club wearing stilettos and a miniskirt with no underwear. She gets pretty drunk and stumbles home in the wrong direction. She ends up lost in a bad neighborhood. She gets raped. Is she to blame in some way? Was this her fault? Was she asking for it? People often say yes to all three in studies asking similar questions after presenting similar scenarios. When you hear about a situation you hope never happens to you, you tend to blame the victim, not because you are a terrible person but because you want to believe you are smart enough to avoid the same fate. You inflate whatever amount of responsibility the victim may bear into something bigger, something you would never do. The truth, though, is rape is rarely something predicated on bad behavior on the part of the victim. Usually, the rapist is someone familiar, and it doesn't matter what the victim was wearing or doing beforehand. The rapist is always to blame, but most awareness campaigns are targeted at women, not men. The message boils down to don't do something that might get you raped. It is common in fiction for the bad guys to lose and the good guys to win. This is how you would like to see the world just and fair. In psychology, the tendency to believe that this is how the real world works is called the just world fallacy. More specifically, this is the tendency to react to horrible misfortune, like homelessness or drug addiction, by believing the people stuck in these situations must have done something to deserve it. The key word there is deserve. This is not an observation that bad choices may lead to bad outcomes. The just world fallacy helps you to build a false sense of security. 
You want to feel in control, so you assume as long as you avoid bad behavior, you won't be harmed. You feel safer when you believe those who engage in bad behavior end up on the street, or pregnant, or addicted, or raped. In a 1966 study by Melvin Lerner and Carolyn Simmons, 72 women watched a woman solve problems and get electric shocks when she messed up. The woman was actually pretending, but the women watching didn't know this. When asked to describe the woman getting shocked, many of the observers devalued her. They berated her character and her appearance. They said she deserved it. Lerner also taught a class on society and medicine, and he noticed many students thought the poor were just lazy people who wanted a handout. So he conducted another study where he had two men solve puzzles. At the end, one of them was randomly awarded a large sum of money. The observers were told the reward was completely random. Still, when asked later to evaluate the two men, people said the one who got the award was smarter, more talented, better at solving puzzles, and more productive. A giant amount of research has been done since learners' studies, and most psychologists have come to the same conclusion, you want the world to be fair, so you pretend it is. The just world fallacy is probably built into the human mind. No matter how liberal or conservative you are, some notion of it pulls on your emotional reaction to hearing about the suffering of others. In a study published in 2010 by Robert Thornberg and Sven Knutsen at Linköping University in Sweden, researchers asked teenagers to explain what causes bullying in school. While most students said the bullies were power-hungry and cruel, 42% blamed the victim for being an easy target. Ask yourself, when you saw people bullying others in school, did you think the victims should stand up for themselves? Did you think the ones being harassed and teased should learn how to dress, how to act more confident, how to hide their nerdishness? In movies about bullies, the main character always has to learn how to stand up and fight back. The bullies get theirs only when the victim takes responsibility. The research says that while you know bullies are the bad guys, you accept it as unchangeable. The world is full of bad guys. The victims, however, have the power to end their own torment. In the same study, 21% of the students blamed themselves the audience. Fewer still said the culprit was society or human nature. The world, most thought, was just unfair. Only the people in it victims and bullies were to blame when bad things happened. You've heard that what goes around comes around, or maybe you've seen a person get what was coming to them and thought, that's karma for you. These are shades of the just world fallacy. It sucks to think the world isn't fair. A world with the righteous on one side of the scale and evil on the other that seems to make sense. You want to believe those who work hard and sacrifice get ahead and those who are lazy and cheat do not. This, of course, is not always true. Success is often greatly influenced by when you were born, where you grew up, the socioeconomic status of your family, and random chance. All the hard work in the world can't change those initial factors. Accepting this does not mean those born poor should just give up.
After all, not taking action guarantees not getting results. In a just world, this would be the only rule, no matter what the initial conditions of your struggle were. The real world is more complicated. People can and do escape, but this doesn't mean those who haven't aren't trying their damnedest to claw out of bad situations. If you look to the downtrodden and wonder why they can't pull themselves out of poverty and get a nice job like you, you are committing the just world fallacy. You are ignoring the unearned blessings of your station. It isn't ahead in the world while firemen and policemen put in long hours for little pay. Deep down, you want to believe hard work and virtue will lead to success and evil and manipulation will lead to ruin, so you go ahead and edit the world to match those expectations. Yet, in reality, evil often prospers and never pays the price. The psychologist Jonathan Haidt says many people who don't consciously believe in karma still believe deep down in some version of it, calling it whatever seems appropriate in their own culture. They see systems like welfare or affirmative action as disrupting the balance of the natural world. Slackers, they think, would get what they deserve if the government kept their noses out of it. Their bad karma would come around to crush them, but unnatural forces prevent it. Meanwhile, since these people play by the rules, pay taxes, and sacrifice hours of life for overtime pay, they assume it has to be for a reason. Their pursuit of the good life can't be futile. The rich, they think, must deserve what they have. One day all the good karma they are generating will lift them even higher up in the fallacy tells them fairness is built into the system, and so they rage when the system artificially unbalances karmic justice. Why do we think this way? Psychologists are unsure. Some say it is a need to be able to predict the outcome of your own behavior, or to feel secure in your past decisions. More research is needed. To be sure, you would like to live in a world where people in white hats bring people in black hats to justice, but you don't. Don't let this discourage you, though. You can accept that life is unfair and still relish it. You aren't in total control of your life, but there is a nice big chunk of your life over which you have complete authority beat that part to a pulp. Just remember the unfair nature of the world, the randomness of birthright, means people often suffer adversity and enjoy opulence through no effort of their own. If you think the world is just and fair, people who need help may never get it. Realize that even though we are all responsible for our actions, the blame for evil acts rests on the perpetrator and never the victim. No one deserves to be raped or bullied, robbed, or murdered. To make the world more just and fair, you have to make it harder for evil to thrive, and you can't do this just by reducing the number of its potential targets. Nineteen the public goods game the misconception, we could create a system with no regulations where everyone would contribute to the good of society, everyone would benefit, and everyone would be happy. The truth, without some form of regulation, slackers and cheaters will crash economic systems because people don't want to feel like suckers. Before you hear about the public goods game, you need to understand the tragedy of the commons. The idea comes from a 1968 essay by geologist Garrett Hardin that suggested you aren't very good at sharing. Imagine you and three others are the only people who know about it. You all agree to take just as many fish from the lake as you need to eat. 
As long as everyone takes just what he or she needs, the lake will stay full of fish. One day, you happen to notice one of the others has started taking more than he or she needs and is selling the extra fish in a nearby town. Eventually that person has a better fishing rod than you. What do you do? If you start overfishing too, you will also be able to get a better rod, maybe even a boat. Maybe you could partner up against the cheater. Maybe everyone will just start taking as many fish as desired. Maybe you could just tell the world about the lake. All of these scenarios will probably lead to the ruin of the common good. If you do nothing, the lake will still be able to support you and the other two, but the cheater wins. Anger over unfair situations is something you can't help but feel. In situations like the imaginary lake above, in an effort not to fall behind, everyone loses. A big holiday meal, for example, can become a zero-sum game if everyone piles a plate, but if everyone takes only what he or she needs, everyone wins. The tragedy of taking from a common good is over time the common good will be depleted out of just a tiny amount of greed. One misguided exploiter can crash the system. Greed is contagious. So what about a public good, a thing which everyone contributes to instead of takes from? It seems the same is true. Cheaters can ruin the system, not by themselves, but because the infectious nature of their gluttony is spread as people catch on to being short-changed. Unfortunately, research into human behavior shows you are not so smart when it comes to contributing to the public good. The public goods game works like this, a group of people sits around a table, and each person is given a few dollars. The group is told they can put as much money as they want in the community pot. An experimenter then doubles the pot, and everyone then gets an equal portion back. If it's 10 people and everyone gets $2, and everyone puts in that money, the pot would be $20. It gets doubled to $40 and divided by 10. Everyone gets back $4. The game proceeds in rounds, and you would think everyone would just put the maximum amount in the pot each time but they don't. Someone usually gets the gist of the game and realizes that one can put in very little, or nothing at all and start making more money than everyone else. If everyone but you puts in $2, the pot would be $18. Double to $36 and everyone gets back $3.60 including you, the one who put nothing in at all. In experiments where this game is played so everyone can see who puts in a fair share, the pot tends to grow for a while and then it starts to shrink as people test the water by withholding funds. The behavior spreads, because no one wants to be a chump, and eventually the economy grinds to a halt. If people are allowed the option of punishing cheaters, the cheating stops, and everyone wins. If instead of punishment, people are given the choice to reward good players, the economy again crashes after a few rounds. The crazy thing about this game is how illogical it is to stop contributing just because someone in the group is free-riding. If everyone else is still being a good citizen of the game, everyone will still win. The old emotional brain kicks in, however, when you see cheating. It's an innate response that served your ancestors well.
You know deep down that cheaters must be punished because it takes only one cheater to make the economy sputter out. You would rather lose the game than help someone who isn't helping you. This game is sometimes used to illustrate how regulation is necessary to keep any sort of non-profit public good alive. Streetlights would never get put along dark roads, and bridges would collapse if people weren't forced to pay taxes. Purely logical creatures could be trusted to figure out life isn't a zero-sum game, but you are not a purely logical creature. You will cheat if you think the system is cheating you. The urge to help others and discourage cheating is something that helped primates like you survive in small groups for millions of years, but when the system becomes gigantic and abstract like the budget for a nation or the welfare system for an entire state, it becomes difficult to make sense of the world through. Those old evolutionary behaviors. The tragedy of the commons can be used to make a case for private property in order to encourage you to take care of your piece of the world but you might think not everyone is going to buy a fuel-efficient car and recycle plastic, so why should you? The public goods game suggests regulation through punishment discourages slackers. It isn't you don't want to help, you just don't want to help a cheater or do more work than a slacker even if you're not helping leads to ruining the game for you and everyone else. 20 The ultimatum game The misconception, you choose to accept or refuse an offer based on logic. The truth, when it comes to making a deal, you base your decision on your status. Imagine you win one million dollar in the lottery, but there's a catch. This is a new experimental lottery in which the state says you must share your winnings with a stranger. You get to decide how the money is split, but the other person can reject your offer. If the other person rejects it, you both get nothing. You get only one chance, and the two of you will never see each other again. How much do you offer? Right about now the very thing that most makes you human has been activated. What separates you most from the rest of the animals is your complex social reasoning skills. Millions of variables are interplaying in your head, and you are running as many simulations as you can conjure to predict the future. You are imagining what the other person will do based on all your instincts and experiences. You now have 10 seconds to decide. Oh no what to do. The most logical thing to do would be to offer the stranger a small sum. How about $1,000? After all, if that person refuses, he or she gets nothing. Unfortunately for you, people don't approach a situation like this with logic. When fairness is at stake, emotions take over. Somewhere deep in your brain, you can predict this, and like most people, you will offer the other person something closer to half. When this experiment is performed with real money and real people in the lab, most offers less than 20% of the total amount are rejected. In this scenario, the bare minimum you would have to offer is $200,000 even though you are the one who won the money. Give this problem to a computer, and it will take anything above zero. Something is better than nothing to a purely logical mind. Give this problem to a human, and you must deal with three million years of evolution. In the wild, we lived in small groups usually fewer than 150 people. It was vitally important to understand where you ranked in such a group. Survival depended on your relationships and your standing. Reputation and status are more important than money to primates. People with lots of money gain high status, but if you were in the middle of a zombie apocalypse, 
the money would suddenly become paper again. Your status would quickly be determined by other factors. In the lottery situation, the money you offer to the other person is interpreted as your estimation of his or her status in the social hierarchy. If the other person accepts less than 20%, he or she will feel inferior and disrespected. The person will lose status in the eyes of others. No matter how large or small the amount, in experiments with real people, offering less than 20% ensures that both parties lose. You know this instinctively, and most people offer around half of their prize when the ultimatum game is played in a laboratory. When you know the other party could exact revenge on you for being unfair, it encourages the sort of altruism that allowed your ancestors to escape into civilization. This effect is even greater if the person making the final decision has low serotonin levels. If a person feels sad and unwanted, he or she will demand more money before accepting. That person's default settings give him or her a sense of lower status, and thus the person is unwilling to lower it even further by accepting an unfair offer. When experimenters change the rules so the person making the offer gets to keep his or her share no matter what, just about everyone tries to screw the other person by offering around 10%. This situation comes up in life all the time. You decide when to ask for a raise, or make a move in the bar, or get up on stage and sing, based on your perceived status within a group. If it is low, you won't risk further damage. If it is high, you expect better treatment. The promise of revenge is one way human beings ensure fairness, and you are precisely tuned to expect it. Your perceived status is part of the unconscious equation you work out when accepting, refusing, and making offers with other people. You are not so smart, so you are willing to get nothing if it ensures fair treatment in the future and a more secure place on the social ladder. 21 Subjective Validation The Misconception, You Are Skeptical of Generalities The truth, you are prone to believing vague statements and predictions are true, especially if they are positive and address you personally. Based on the data I've collected from the comments, emails, and other browsing information generated by the You Are Not So Smart blog, all cross-referenced with demographics information prepared in marketing studies for the placement of this book on shelves around the world, I have a pretty good idea of who you are. Here are my findings, you have a need for other people to like and admire you, and yet you tend to be critical of yourself. While you have some personality weaknesses, you are generally able to compensate for them. You have considerable unused capacity that you have not turned to your advantage. Disciplined and self-controlled on the outside, you tend to be worried and insecure on the inside. At times you have serious doubts as to whether you have made the right decision or done the right thing. You prefer a certain amount of change and variety and become dissatisfied when hemmed in by restrictions and limitations. You also pride yourself on being an independent thinker and do not accept others' statements without satisfactory proof. But you have found it unwise to be too frank in revealing yourself to others. At times you are extroverted, affable, and sociable while at other times you are introverted, wary, and reserved. Some of your aspirations tend to be rather unrealistic. Does this sound accurate? Does it describe you? It should. It describes everyone. All the above statements came from a 1948 experiment by Bertram R. Forer. 
He gave his students a personality test and told them each one had been personally assessed, but then gave everyone the same analysis. He asked his students to look over the statements and rate them for accuracy. On average, they rated the bogus analysis as 85% correct as if it had been personally prepared to describe each one of them. The block of text above was actually a mishmash of lines from horoscopes collected by Forer for the experiment. The tendency to believe vague statements designed to appeal to just about anyone is called the Forer effect, and psychologists point to this phenomenon to explain why people fall for pseudoscience like biorhythms, iridology, and phrenology or mysticism like astrology, numerology, and tarot cards. The Forer effect is part of a larger phenomenon psychologists refer to as subjective validation, which is a fancy way of saying you are far more vulnerable to suggestion when the subject of the conversation is you. Since you are always in your own head, thoughts about what it means to be you take up a lot of mental space. With some cultural variations, most people are keen on being individuals, unique and special persons whose hopes and dreams and fears and doubts are all their own. If you have the means, you personalize everything, your license plate, your ringtone, your computer's desktop wallpaper, your bedroom's walls. Everything around you says something about your personality. Cultivating an incomparable self either through consumption or creation is not something you take lightly. Yet somewhere between nature and nurture, we are all far more similar than we think. Genetically, you and your friends are almost identical. Those genes create the brain that generates the mind from which your thoughts spring. Thus, genetically, your mental life is as similar to everyone else's as the feet in your shoes. Culturally, we differ. Our varying experiences in our varying environments shape us. Still, deep below, we are the same and the failure to notice this can be exploited. If a statement is ambiguous and you think it addresses you directly, you will boil away the ambiguity by finding ways to match the information up with your own traits. You think back to all the time spent figuring out who you are, dividing your qualities from the qualities of others, and apply the same logic. Here's an excerpt from a real horoscope at horoscopes.com, at some point during the day you might have the feeling that you aren't working hard enough to keep the forward motion going, and you might feel panic rise. This could prove a good motivating factor, but you don't need to push yourself harder than you're going now. You're on a roll and it's likely to continue. Just pace yourself. Now here's another one from the same source on the same day but for a different sign, don't be too hard. On yourself if you're dragging a little toward the end of the day. You'll be able to recharge your batteries before tomorrow. In the evening, relax at home with a good book. Seen straight on, horoscopes describe the sort of things we all experience, but pluck one from the bunch, turn it ever so slightly, and you will see it matching all the details of your life. If you believe you live under a sign, and the movement of the planets can divine your future, a general statement becomes specific. It is this hope that gives subjective validation its power. If you want the psychic to be real, or the sacred stones to forecast the unknown, you will find a way to believe them even when they falter. When you need something to be true, you will look for patterns, you connect the dots like the stars of a constellation. Your brain abhors disorder. You see faces in clouds and demons in bonfires. 
Those who claim the powers of divination hijack these natural human tendencies. They know they can depend on you to use subjective validation in the moment and confirmation bias afterward. The psychologist Ray Hyman has spent most of his life studying the art of deception. Before he entered the halls of science, he worked as a magician and then moved on to mentalism after discovering he could make more money reading palms than performing card tricks. The crazy thing about Hyman's career as a palm reader is, like many psychics, over time he began to believe he actually did have psychic powers. The people who came to him were so satisfied, so bowled over, he thought he must have a real gift. Subjective validation cuts both ways. Hyman was using a technique called cold reading, where you start with the wide-angle lens of generalities and watch the other person for cues so you can constrict the focus down to what seems like a powerful insight into the other person's soul. It works because people tend to ignore the little misses and focus on the hits. As he worked his way through college, another mentalist, Stanley Jacks, took Hyman aside and saved him from delusion by asking him to try something new tell people the opposite of what he believed their palms revealed. The result? They were just as flabbergasted by his abilities, if not more so. Cold reading was powerful, but tossing it aside, he was still able to amaze. Hyman realized what he said didn't matter as long as his presentation was good. The other person was doing all the work, tricking him or herself, seeing the general as the specific just like in the four effect. Mediums and palm readers, those who speak for the dead or see into the beyond for cash, depend on subjective validation. Remember, your capacity to fool yourself is greater than the abilities of any conjurer, and conjurers come in many guises. You are a creature impelled to hope. As you attempt to make sense of the world, you focus on what falls into place and neglect that which doesn't fit, and there is so much in life that does not fit. When you see a set of horoscopes, read all of them. When someone claims he or she can see into your heart, realize that all of our hearts are much the same. 22 Cult Indoctrination The Misconception you are too smart to join a cult. The truth, cults are populated by people just like you. Cults are a side effect of natural human tendencies. You have an innate desire to belong to a group and to hang out with interesting people. If you have ever admired someone you have never actually met like a musician you've experienced the seed of the cult phenomenon. The word cult is slippery, because seen from far away, many organizations, institutions, and religions could be seen as cults. The line between groups and cults is blurry. The fuzzy line is why you are far more likely to end up in a cult than you think. The research on cults suggests you don't usually join for any particular reason, you just sort of fall into them the way you fall into any social group. After all, when did you join your circle of friends? Your group of close friends has likely changed a great deal over the years, but have you made many active choices concerning who you hang out with other than avoiding the ones who are a pain in the ass? The sorts of people who join cults are not all insecure or emotionally weak. You'd like to think that you are not the sort of person who could be beguiled by a charismatic leader with a clear vision but you are not so smart. According to psychologist David Myers, cults form around sparkly, interesting individuals Jim Jones, David Korsh, L. Ron Hubbard, Charles Manson but people don't usually follow the leader, 
they follow the ideals the leader proclaims to be serving. These leaders seem to have things figured out, and you want to figure those things out too. Gandhi, Che Guevara, Terence McKenna, and Socrates are all great thinkers who seem to have access to secrets, insights into something bigger. Naturally, people followed them, hoping to gain their mojo through osmosis. Were their followers in a cult? See, that's where the definition falls apart. This is why you are susceptible to this sort of behavior. As a primate, you are keenly aware of group dynamics. You are hardwired to want to hang out with people and associate yourself with groups. Your survival has depended on it for millions of years. In addition, you don't evaluate your behavior and choices and feelings in order to understand who you are. Instead, you have an idealistic vision of yourself, a character you've dreamed up in your mind, and you are always trying to become this character. You seek out groups to affiliate with to better solidify who you are in the story you tell yourself the story explaining why you do the things you do. Myers says cults start with a charismatic individual. Maybe this person believes he is special in some way, or maybe he is just naturally interesting. People start hanging out with him, and a spontaneous group forms with the charismatic person becoming an authority figure. If this person has an agenda, or a goal, or enemies he wants eliminated, he will cultivate the goodwill of his fans into action. If he has difficult goals to reach, he will try to expand his group with recruitment or proselytizing, often hiding his true intentions so as not to scare away potential members. Some leaders know what they are doing, but some just serve their instincts and accidentally form cults around themselves before they realize what they've done. How these people wield their power over others ultimately determines how history will label them. Those who abuse their power and take advantage of their followers, like Jim Jones and Charles Manson, form what you traditionally consider a cult. Others, like Mohandas Gandhi, who convinced thousands to follow him on foot for 241 miles as he walked to the sea to protest attacks on salt, aren't seen as cult leaders. Any group with a charismatic leader has the potential to break away and form a subculture. Some make the world a better place. Others convince people to kill themselves. If you have ever called yourself a fan of anyone a musician, a director, a writer, a politician, a technological genius, a scientist you are experiencing the first stage of cult indoctrination. If you were to meet the person you most admire and be offered the chance to hang out with him or her on a regular basis would you? You would. What happens next would depend on a chaotic series of variables, sometimes the result is a cult, and sometimes those cults live on beyond their leaders. There is no agent behind it, no person deciding to form or join a cult. Cults aren't designed. They form as a result of normal human tendencies going awry. 23 Groupthink The Misconception Problems are easier to solve when a group of people get together to discuss solutions. The truth, the desire to reach consensus and avoid confrontation hinders progress. When a group of people come together to make a decision, every demon in the psychological bestiary will be summoned. Conformity, rationalization, stereotyping, delusions of grandeur they all come out to play, and no one is willing to fight them back into hell because it might lead to abandoning the plan or a nasty argument. Groups survive by maintaining harmony. 
When everyone is happy and all egos are free from harm it tends to increase productivity. This is true whether you are hunting buffalo or selling televisions. Team spirit, morale, group cohesion these are golden principles long held high by managers, commanders, chieftains, and kings. You know instinctively that descent leads to chaos, so you avoid it. This is all well and good until you find yourself in a group your brain isn't equipped to deal with like at work. The same mind that was formed to deal with group survival around predators and prey doesn't fare so well when dealing with bosses and fiscal projections. No matter what sort of job you have, from time to time everyone has to get together and come up with a plan. Sometimes you do this in small groups, sometimes as an entire company. If your group includes a person who can hire or fire, groupthink comes into play. With a boss hanging around, you get nervous. You start observing the other members of the group in an attempt to figure out what the consensus opinion is. Meanwhile, you are simultaneously weighing the consequences of disagreeing. The problem is, every other person in the group is doing the same thing, and if everyone decides it would be a bad idea to risk losing friends or a job, a false consensus will be reached and no one will do anything about it. Often, after these sorts of meetings, two people will talk in private and agree they think a mistake is being made. Why didn't they just say so in the meeting? Psychologist Irving Janis mapped out this behavior through research after reading about the U.S. decision to invade southern Cuba the Bay of Pigs. In 1961, President John F. Kennedy tried to overthrow Fidel Castro with a force of 1,400 exiles. They weren't professional soldiers. There weren't many of them. Cuba knew they were coming. They were slaughtered. This led to Cuba getting friendly with the USSR and almost led to nuclear apocalypse. John F. Kennedy and his advisors were brilliant people with all the data in front of them who had gotten together and planned something incredibly stupid. After it was over, they couldn't explain why they did it. Janice wanted to get to the bottom of it, and his research led to the scientific categorization of groupthink, a term coined earlier by William H. White in Fortune magazine. It turns out, for any plan to work, every team needs at least one asshole who doesn't give a shit if he or she gets fired or exiled or excommunicated. For a group to make good decisions, they must allow dissent and convince everyone they are free to speak their mind without risk of punishment. It seems like common sense, but you will rationalize consensus unless you know how to avoid it. How many times have you settled on a bar or restaurant no one really wanted to go to? How many times have you given advice to someone that you knew wasn't really your honest opinion? The recent housing market collapse, the failure to prevent the attack at Pearl Harbor, the sinking of the Titanic, the invasion of Iraq all of these can be attributed to situations in which groupthink led to awful decisions. True groupthink depends on three conditions a group of people who like one another, isolation, and a deadline for a crucial decision. As a primate, you are quick to form groups and then feel as if you should defend those groups from the ill wishes of other groups. When groups get together to make a decision, an illusion of invulnerability can emerge in which everyone feels secure in the cohesion. You begin to rationalize other people's ideas and don't reconsider your own. You want to defend the group's cohesion from all harm, so you suppress doubts, you don't argue, you don't offer alternatives and since everyone is doing this, the leader of the group falsely assumes everyone is in agreement. 
Research says the situation can be avoided if the boss is not allowed to express his or her expectations, thus preventing the boss's opinion from automatically becoming the opinion of others. In addition, if the group breaks into pairs every once in a while to discuss the issue at hand, a manageable level of dissent can be fostered. Even better, allow outsiders to offer their opinions periodically during the process, to keep people's objectivity afloat. Finally, assign one person the role of asshole and charge that person with the responsibility of finding fault in the plan. Before you come to a consensus, allow a cooling off period so Emotions can return to normal. The research shows that groups of friends who allow members to disagree and still be friends are more likely to come to better decisions. So the next time you are in a group of people trying to reach consensus, be the asshole. Every group needs one, and it might as well be you. 24 Supernormal Releasers The Misconception, Men Who Have Sex With Real Dolls Are Insane, and Women Who Marry 80-Year-Old Billionaires Are Gold Diggers. The truth, the real doll and rich old sugar daddies are both supernormal releasers. The Australian jewel beetle has sex with beer bottles. The beetles are a light chocolate color with dimples all down their back and dark black legs and heads that peek out from underneath their carapaces. Their bodies are big and long instead of round, and they resemble cicadas more than they do ladybugs. The male Australian jewel beetle is hardwired to like certain aspects about the female jewel beetle. They like females to be big, brown, and shiny. The bottles they make love to are bigger, browner, and shinier than any female could ever hope to be. In Australia, a certain type of bottle called Stubbies overstimulates male jewel beetles. In a trash heap filled with bottles, you will often see every single stubby covered in male jewel beetles trying to get it on. The stubbies are what evolutionary psychologists call supernormal releasers. They are super stimuli better than the real thing. The beetles will mate with these bottles even while being devoured by ants. This sort of behavior is common across the animal kingdom. Anything that directly affects your survival can become a super stimulus if exaggerated enough. Birds can become confused by eggs from other, parasitic birds who hijack their nests. The eggs look like theirs, but are much bigger, so they sit atop them even though they belong to another. There are orchids that have powerful scents like a female wasps or a bee queens, and males mate with the flower, getting covered in pollen in the process. Back when people lived in the wild, where high-calorie food was scarce, your ancestors developed an intense desire to gobble up as much animal fat as they could when they were lucky enough to find it. Now you can't stop eating French fries and cheeseburgers. If you associate something with survival, but find an example of that thing that is more perfect than anything your ancestors could have ever dreamed of it will overstimulate you. When it comes to mate selection, the genders are usually divided into two camps. One has to carry the offspring and reproduce less often, the other can reproduce many times over without much risk. In this scenario, supernormal releasers either exaggerate the fertility and health of the egg carriers, or the status and resources of the sperm carriers. For human ladies, a tux on a man who owns a private jet and three homes in Italy creates a powerful set of supernormal releasers. Most women wouldn't hook up with a man who looks like the crypt keeper, but if he owns a publishing empire or a fortune equivalent to the gross domestic product of a European nation, some will. 
For human guys, symmetry, big breasts, wide hips, narrow waists, lustrous hair, and voluptuous lips add up to a powerful supernormal releaser. Most men wouldn't have sex with a plastic corpse, but the strength of real doll sales over the years shows some will. Both of these examples are the human equivalent of those sexy beer bottles. Psychologist David Buss has spent his career studying the preferences of men and women when it comes to selecting a mate both for short-term flings and long-term relationships. In his book The Evolution of Desire, he points to one crucial aspect which seems to be held above all others when men are making a snap judgment about physical attraction the hip-to-waist ratio. In many studies around the world, no matter what cultural significance is placed on body type, a ratio in which the waist is about 70% the width of the hips is always preferred. According to Buss, a hip-to-waist ratio of 0.67 to 0.80 correlates to health, reproductive, and otherwise. Women with this ratio truly are healthier, and this is something men know unconsciously. Psychologist Devendra Singh's 1993 study of Playboy Center Folds showed although the women in the magazine had become thinner over the years, their average hip-to-waist ratio remained a constant 0.70. The strange thing about this natural tendency for men to prefer small waists and big hips is how a super stimulus with physically impossible features produces even more attraction. Psychologist Carrie Johnson's research into hip-to-waist ratios in 2005 showed both men and women used this metric to determine the gender of silhouettes. Her eye-tracking computer programs clearly showed both sexes first looked at the face and then moved around the hip area to see the telltale signs of gender. Her research also showed when men were asked to rate attractiveness they were drawn to a 0.70 waist. But they were drawn to waists of 0.60 and 0.50 even more. A waist this small would make it impossible for a woman to bear children. So the super stimuli weren't telling the man this was an incredibly fertile and healthy woman, they were just a shortcut, a heuristic. Men's brains were telling them small waists and big hips were good. Since waists so small the woman wouldn't be able to bear children were unlikely in nature, there was no adjustment built into the heuristic to not be attracted to super tiny waists. Johnson also had men and women walk on a treadmill and told half of the subjects she was measuring their efficiency. She told the other half she was measuring how sexually attractive they were. When told they were being judged for sexiness, the women unconsciously swooshed their hips from side to side, which made it appear to observers as if their hip-to-waist ratio had magically been reduced. This is how super stimuli boggle your mind. Your mental shortcuts aren't prepared to deal with exaggerations. Barbie dolls, anime characters, and ancient fertility statues are impossible versions of women, but both sexes unconsciously know about the magic of the hip-to-waist ratio and the power of super stimuli. Men are easy to manipulate thanks to having fewer metrics by which they judge potential mates, and thus advertising has long been preying on their tendencies. Women will buy products in an attempt to become the impossible goal. Men will buy products in an attempt to mate with the impossible goal. Sexy and sexist advertising can kill two birds with one stone. Advertisers use genetic freaks with abnormal symmetry, lit by professionals, altered by makeup artists, and finished off with Photoshop until they are nothing more than realistic cartoons just like a real doll. For women, 
a super stimulus has to have more than just a rocking body and a good hip to waist ratio. Women have more to lose when they make a bad decision, so they have evolved a more complex and particular set of metrics by which potential mates are judged. David Buss says those include, but are not limited to, economic capacity, social status, ambition, stability, intelligence, commitment, and height. Any one of these guides for reproductive success in both a short-term or long-term mate can become a super stimulus, but for a man to be a supernormal releaser he would need to possess several. A tall, rich doctor who is both kind and faithful is far more attractive than a short waiter who lives with his parents and is quick to anger, no matter how sculpted his chest is. Don't leave this subject thinking you are above all of this. Even if you don't act on your impulses, you still feel them. Eventually, something will overtake you, even if it's as small as a sandwich with two pieces of fried chicken for a bun instead of bread. A study at Rutgers University in 2003 showed the average size of what most Americans considered a fair portion of food had increased significantly in 20 years. A glass of orange juice is now 40% larger. A bowl of cornflakes is 20% bigger. Plates in restaurants have grown by 25% in size. The influence of super stimuli has changed what people think is a generous helping, but no one noticed until recently. Remember, you take mental shortcuts whenever possible to determine when something is awesome. When a stimulus goes from good to great,